Thanks for tuning in to Power Athlete Radio. It's not a bad thing to recognize your genetic strengths and limitations. You can actually use them to your advantage because, after all, knowledge is power. Our guest, Dr. Chris Morris of the University of Kentucky, brings us up to speed on something called fluid periodization. And yes, it is as cool as it sounds. Being flexible with whatever program you've chosen to implement is an integral part of this personalized application. The future is now, and the future says that we can test an individual athlete's performance markers on a given day with an array of technology. Take that biofeedback and alter the program so that the athlete can optimize their training on that given day based on things like recovery, power, wellness, etc. Now you can predict when it's best to literally go big or go home. When robots take over as coaches, we will most certainly be fucked. This is episode 293. What's up? Happening. Oh, what is up? What's happening? Hey, Peter. What's happening? Yeah. So, um, going to need you to come in. I'm going to need you to come in on Saturday. I wouldn't say I'm missing it, Bob. Ladies and gentlemen, you are listening to another episode of the premier podcast in strength and conditioning. Ing. Ing. I didn't get an ing out of this. Guy. <laughs> I was trying to give you a delayed ing after you guys had already inged yourself. Ing. I was going to drop in an ing. Self-inging? Ing. That's ing. a punch. Hey, ladies and gentlemen, big show today. I, I thought this was a fucking killer show, but before we get into our guest and what's ahead, that starts off hot. Like, it, we have a hot start. You came out of the gate hot here. I think it was great. Well, it just depends on what the hens is going to do. Is she going to edit all that? No way, dude. I in? think that's got to stay. Oh, uh, that's not true. I dropped some good, uh, you know, comments <laughs> at the last podcast that ended up on the on the floor of the production office. Well, it definitely would put us on FBI's most wanted list. <laughs> <laughs> we did this for us, John. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, it is a new year. It might be a new you. Is that what they say? No, new, year? new me, new me, new you. New me, it's a new me, so it's a new, new year. year. Yeah, new, new year, new, new me. New, it's a new me, so it's a new year. Am I doing it right? No. New me, new you? It's a new you. Wait, it's got to be your bull. I was just checking the specs no. to the end line on the rotary girder. But it's your dog. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, proud to announce some cool programming changes or additions, additions in upcoming cycles. First off, we're proud to announce the launch of Lean and Able, our newest addition to the program family. I am excited. Uh, this has been almost a year in development. Also, we not only field tested this program, putting out the Lean mm-hmm. and Able training manuals, we got a ton of great content and information and just user engagement feedback, which helped us actually take to market a training program specific lean enable and turn it into a team. So we, we had the idea, we pushed it out. We got a ton of feedback and end up now having it as one of our teams here at power athlete. Yeah. And enable. The, the challenge was when we were circling up, okay, let's get a program based off the principles of all the good shit we put out and how can we make it accessible to anyone who can't handle or isn't ready or doesn't have time for Jack street field, strong bedrock grindstone and the basis of lean enable is maintaining the principles of power athlete and giving you a training program that you can finish up in 30 to 40 minutes. And if you stick to it consistently and you are constantly going as heavy as you can in the strength portion and even in the conditioning portions, you're going to see some serious gains. 
So I know a couple of my buddies are actually on it. And it's funny when you go through, because we could look through the, the analytics and sure. you can see like total tonnage. They're like, they get it because I've told them, like, just get in and you go, go as heavy as you can. And they're like 3x the total tonnage for the day than some of the other dudes on there. Well, I think people, you know. But they'll work up to it, right? And that's the goal is to get them. But these guys are like Jack Street guys and Ryan Stone guys. Yeah, Yeah. but I I think on a long enough timeline in a self-regulating program, people will eventually get to the number that they should. Which is kind of like what we're talking about here on the podcast. Yeah. No, so, well, we got that. And then the other really exciting thing is... 2019, we are at the 10-year anniversary of CrossFit football. So for... What is CrossFit football? If someone on here doesn't know what that is. Well, it's different than CrossFit foosball. Uh Uh-huh. But CrossFit football was this... CrossFit as a football team? Yeah. (laughs) So I'll tell you, back in 2009, many, many years ago, I got uh, requested, I got pinged, I got asked to start a sports-specific version of CrossFit to apply towards power sports. Um, and we do talk a little bit about it yeah. in the intro or in the next part. Yeah, so. Greg, Greg Glassman, who is the, uh, who is the creator of CrossFit suggested we should call it CrossFit football. And my comment was, that's a terrible name. People are going to think it's got blocking and tackling. He's like, no, no, no. People get it. Cause you played football. They like, didn't huh. get it. No, they didn't get it. So I put out this program called CrossFit football, which was a periodized strength conditioning template with uh, short, heavy, hard metcons and sprinting. And uh, we launched it under the name, and I taught a seminar, and that's how I ended up how I met these, you know, two hosts. Hunks. I was going to go with hosts. Hosts of the podcast. Yes, that's right. Hosts. Uh, Co-hosts. We're we're actually... two hosts. Yeah, the two hosts for the premier podcast in strength and conditioning. Featuring John Wellborn. Ing, ing. Ing. Oh, thanks. So uh, these two guys were organic attendees and we traveled the world and spread the gospel and it allowed me to answer a lot of the questions that you know you see here today in power athlete but it was a huge huge thing for me at the time and really uh people still remember it and talk about it i mean it just went away for you know a couple of years ago and uh for the 10 year anniversary i am cracking out the 100 original crossfit football workouts and we've talked about this on johnny times, watt yeah. so we're going to you know, Johnny Watt is going to don a new shirt, a new cape, a new image of Johnny Football. Johnny mm-hmm. Foosball, Johnny Football is going to come out, and we are going to drop the original workouts. Now, these workouts were crafted with Andy Stumpf. Um, Who's an asshole. Navy Steel. Well, yeah, m- massive. Great guy, though. Yeah, the best. But so I remember when Glassman spun this idea across the football, I hit up Andy, and I was like, dude, we're going to need a bunch of workouts. So I went down to Andy's house. We fired up a bunch of drinks, had a bunch of workouts. And so I still have all that original programming. Uh, little known fact that the original collegiate template was the training template that I created for Andy Stumpf. So a little history. And so we're going to crack it out, and we're going to go a little Johnny football, and uh, we're going to melt some faces and destroy some hearts. Hey, and if you're out there and you're you are just – searching for what training you want to follow, head to johnnywad.com. J-O-H-N-N-I-E-W-O-D.com. Johnny workout of the day.com is really what it is. Now, you know, you perverts that think, you know, wad, Johnny oh, wad. Ugh, like, Phil, Florin, Phil. Yeah, no, it's Johnny workout <laughs> of the day. Epi- check out episode 291 for the history of Johnny wad. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's right. And if you want to Google, Google J O H N N Y W A D D to see. AKA Johnny Holmes. Don't do that on your school computer or your mom's computer. That's fine. It's safe for work, depending on where you work. Like in Power Athlete, definitely <laughs> safe for work. 
All right, ladies and gentlemen, enough about us, enough, enough about programming. Go check that stuff out. But we have on the show today the director of applied sports science at Kentucky. We have Dr. Chris Morris. And it starts out hot because as soon as we jump on, he was like, John, I emailed you. Remember that? You're like, oh, I think so. And then boom, we get the like true origin of the relationship there, which I think is fucking epic. Yeah. And where this guy's gone. So strap yourselves in, people. It's a great, great discussion. You're in it for two hours because that's how long it goes. Ready, set, go. We've, we've been following uh, you guys. Actually, been following John since the early, early, early days of CrossFit football. Actually, uh, John, I emailed you when I was a master's student. Uh, get the archives. Okay. Kid, kid from Kentucky wanting to do his research on the effect of CrossFit versus traditional football training. Oh yeah, did I get back to you? You did actually get back to me, but uh, then it, then we kind of lost touch. But it pretty much fell off on my strength coach told me to just yeah go fuck yourself so sorry uh, <laughs> uh you know what uh i could have done all your research for you and at the time yeah. i probably hadn't told you because uh i had been doing traditional football training i'd been training with the guys up at athletes performance and then right. it was probably a couple weeks before the crossfit games that they asked me to do the crossfit games and i was getting ready to go back to training camp and um i decided like hey fuck it let me go do this thing so I started nice. doing pure CrossFit and competed in the games, went to training camp. And I remember the first time we strapped on the pads, I got in my stance and the ball snapped and I mm -hmm. didn't go fucking anywhere. And it was like, you know, like the, um, I call it the, the Armageddon moment. You remember when uh, Harry Stamper pushes the button and he sees his whole life flash before his eyes. I saw yeah. my entire training mistake of using fucking uh, submaximal efforts for repeated extended bouts of exercise. Uh, right. as a function for making you a dramatically worse football player. Absolutely. No, it's so, so then when I ended up getting injured and I had knee surgery and then I, you know, Glassman approached me about doing this thing. He was like, you know, do you think, um, do you think we could use CrossFit to train football players? And I was like, no, not, not yeah. in the least. He's like, well, you did it. I'm like, yeah. And I got fucking dramatically worse. And I went through this whole thing <laughs> with like, if you want to be good at CrossFit, uh, submaximal efforts will cause a conversion of fast twitch muscle fibers to, you know, more of a slow twitch muscle fiber just for the sustained amount of work. Like, like there's right. no way to be a fucking, uh, highly evolved, extremely twitchy, explosive athlete and be able to do something with these 20, 30 minute, you know, even 15 minutes extended workouts, extended workouts, the way right. you guys are doing them. And, um, Absolutely. and he was like, Oh, and so then at the end of our conversation, he was like, well, why don't you just do CrossFit football and why don't you program it how you think it should be done? So all I did was just take a standard strength conditioning template with, uh, you know, uh, beginners using a linear uh, periodization. And then, you know, we, uh, I always had a kind of a mix in my work of, um, you know, I would do rep maxes. Uh, I would do some compensatory acceleration speed work. And then I would, you know, hit reps or do different things and, you know, unilateral movements. And I just basically dropped that program with just short conditioning workouts like we did in, uh, you remember mat drills or off-season conditioning, yep. just kind of mm -hmm. doing those to some circuits and different things. And really, that's what CrossFit football was. And yep. then we launched it out and convinced all these CrossFitters. And next thing you know, everybody's really strong and having a lot of fun lifting weights, getting in really good shape. And sprinting. Then, mm -hmm. Sprinting. Yeah. So, and, and then the best part is, is not only did I put that program out and there were, you know, tens of thousands of people following it, but then we got to travel to every country on the planet and meet all the people doing it. So in a way yeah. I got to do my own sea monkey experiment. I got to put out a product and then I got to actually travel the world and meet the people doing it. And nice. the results were universal. Everybody had the exact same experience. 
Mm-hmm. And the people that showed up to our seminar that hadn't done the program beforehand were fucking garbage compared to the people who had been doing the program and showed to the seminar. So, John, in, yep. this, in this Armageddon analogy, if you're Harry Stamper, who's Rockhound throughout the early days of CrossFit football? Ah, uh, who would be Rockhound? And for our listeners, if you haven't seen Armageddon, shame. Uh, Watch it. That's Buscemi. We didn't really have a Rockhound uh, because, um, you know, I mean... I don't know anybody that has ever had space dementia because don't you remember when he's like shooting the gun and they're like, Oh, he's got space dementia. Like space dementia is a real fucking thing. And you're going to just get it. But, uh, I don't know. Uh, it, it was a really pretty fascinating piece. And unfortunately I couldn't fucking submarine and, uh, blow up my business as it just started. But what I looked at it and the, um, the only way I could kind of couch it with, you know, like, do you remember uh, doc holiday when he's like my, uh, my hypocrisy only goes so far. You remember, and he gives him mm-hmm. back the badge. That was what kind of yeah. happened. And I, I told CrossFit, I was like, you know, um, I don't think that you should train athletes using uh, like this mixed modal kind of high intensity interval training. I'm like, I think when you guys look at intensity, you're talking about intensity from like an emotional standpoint, your black box. I look at intensity as percentage of one RM. I need to be able to move heavy weights as fast as possible. Uh, this submaximal, you know, effort is just, it's counterintuitive to what I understand. Like, you know, I know that you were a punter, your ability to catch the ball, take a perfect step and then drive maximal force into the ball. I mean, if somebody asked you to do that a hundred times at 50% velocity, like that would be a negative training effect. Correct. And, uh, as I was trying to explain it to them, I realized that Glassman and nobody associated with CrossFit had any grasp of strength conditioning at all, like had never, like hadn't really trained people and didn't, had never read any research, had never done any studies, had like knew nothing of strength conditioning, had just had this kind of strange, and Glassman's a sharp dude uh, when he's not hammered, but had this kind of (laughs) observational deal that if you could get people to work out to a near point of exhaustion, like right before throwing up, and you got them to do that repeatedly on an extremely restricted caloric diet via the zone, like, hey, I'm going to give you 12 zone blocks and work you out till you throw up, uh, they got in better shape. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right? So it, it was like when I sat down and I started, to, and he, he tried to say to me, he's like, you know, there's never been a single contribution to performance or strength conditioning from a, a sports scientist. And I was like, well, what about, uh, um, what, uh, what about VO2 max testing? Mm-hmm. What about testing lactic acid threshold training or, you know, basically coming in here and doing blood work and trying to figure out what, who's, di- you know, your ability to process lactic acid. What about that? And I, I just mm-hmm. started fucking hammering with these things. And I realized what he really meant was he didn't know fucking dickle mm-hmm. about training. Yeah. And so all he wanted to do was because I don't know this stuff, I'm just going to cast stones at anything that looks like traditional because it's easier than me actually figuring out where we sit within the hierarchy. And at that yeah. point, I was like, this is fucking awful, but I had this, this growing business and the analogy that, uh, one of my seal buddies, Andy Stump, and I was like, I don't think I, and even Rob Wolf said this to me, I'm like, I don't think I can fucking do this. And Rob's thing is, imagine there was a building on fire and there were people inside the building and every day you could go in and get one person out. Would you go in and get them? I'm like, of course. He's like, what CrossFit football and what power athlete is doing is you're effectively pulling people out of a burning, uh, burning building. And he goes, if you stop, they're all going to burn up. And I'm like, really? He's like, dude, he goes, the only legitimate 
uh, like piece of like shred of intelligence that I've seen in the CrossFit stuff within the last amount of years. And this is Rob Wolf. He's like, is what you're doing. I mean, it's a reason that Rob Wolf, I, I still help Rob with his programming and it's the best he's ever been is, and I, and I, I just go back to it. Like I stand on the shoulders of giants. I was always like the, uh, the athlete where I was like, Hey, why are we doing this? And I had great strength coaches. Um, but I also realized very quickly that, you know, uh, things like, uh, you know, my ability to replicate force. So I, and I, and I watched a ton of this stuff and I'm sure you did too, where I watched guys bench like 550, 600 pounds in the weight room, but yet couldn't fucking knock over anybody. Yep. And, I, and I watched other guys that barely bench, you know, 225, 230, and they were fucking destroying people. And yep. I remember watching like, you know, all of these things and then realizing that like every time they struck they were in a very advantageous joint angle. And I remember thinking like, man, is there something with the hips and the joint ankle and understanding it, your ability to accelerate here and here, fast hands. And then, you know, it just came back to me understanding that it wasn't how strong I was, but it was how fast I could move heavy weights. And then I also noticed a difference within physiques of guys that lifted weights consistently over 80% opposed to those that didn't. Uh, got, you yeah. know, and then there was a, like this whole genetic thing where I looked at like, you know, you think about like a, a bell curve, you know, in the NFL has got all these fucking genetic freaks. And I, yeah. I, I wasn't one of them, but yet I was able to train myself. I mean, obviously I had some genetic makeup, but like I was able to train myself into an advantageous position because I understood posture and position and joint angle and, you know, leverages and striking and first meaningful touches and, you know, how to cover a guy up and play him two, two thirds inside out and not how to get into bad positions and, you know, take the first fucking strike and do all the little things right to get me there. And, yeah. um, it was what I did for 10 years and I understood it on a very like granular level. And so mm -hmm. when CrossFit approached me, it was really, I mean, I'm sure like, man, I'm sure you start rapping with people. You start to them talking about training and they're like, yeah, I want to build muscle just riding an exercise bike. Mm -hmm. And you're like, where's the eccentric load? And they're like, what's eccentric? And you're like, yeah. so, so what you're going to do is nothing but concentric movements spinning around, round, round. And they're, and then they'll be like, well, those, the, the cyclists have massive quads. And you're like, which ones, the ones in the tour de France or the sprinters. Yep. And, they'll, and they'll be like, well, you know, and I've, I had this conversation with somebody and I'm like, well, like this, you know, the, the guys that ride in the, what is it, the hippodrome or the, the pelodrome or whatever it is, those dudes all have huge, huge quads. And I'm like, are you thinking their quads are huge because of the pedaling of the bike or what they're doing for their training? You know, so it's like causation isn't or correlation isn't causation kind of a deal. Absolutely. So it was really interesting from like, um, doing like this ground grassroots experiment. And I'm really sad that we didn't get to connect on it because the amount of information that we could have collected just from walking into a group and like having people voluntarily show up, pay, and then we get to go in and do the research study of like, and the, the very first question you guys can ask you, what's the first question we ask? Where are you guys from? How long have you followed the program? Yep. How many people here followed it for one day, two days? And we go through the whole thing and we could very easily assess who the people were that had followed the program. Uh, you know, just the idea that we squat with our toes forward, the idea that, Hey, if I put my toes forward, I can get my big toe on the ground. I can fire a glute muscle, which was completely foreign to the fucking CrossFit community that was squatting with their toes out. Yep. And, th and then they wondered why they couldn't change direction. And they had this terrible force bleed effect. Yep. So, I mean, just going through all these pieces, man, like I, like I, I always wish that I had connected with somebody who could have done the research just, you know, or as been able to make sense of just the observations that I had, because we had so many pools of people. I mean, you, you give away this free program and then you have people show up and pay you to come train with you and mm -hmm. then we get to ask them. So it was bitching, man. But uh, it was fucking like a little piece of me died every single day having to fucking carry their flag. 
So I guess, yeah. I guess long story short, nice to chat with you again, since there's some heritage <laughs> here. You know what it's, I mean? It's, it's, it's been a while. I don't, I can't remember. When did you come out with CrossFit football? Uh, that was year? 2009. So I got hurt in 2008 and then had surgery in late 2008. And I was literally posted up on the couch with my knee in a CPM when CrossFit called and asked if uh, I would come help them. To yeah, quote, to quote think, them, yeah. they said, can you, <laughs> I always go back to this because they called it a technology play that, uh, you know, they needed to understand, you know, this is their technology and we don't, you know, and it was just like, you guys don't know how to train athletes, but yet you guys yeah. use the athlete moniker. And I, and I realized they had never really defined athlete. You know, mm-hmm. Glassman also told the world that uh, he defined fitness and nobody else before him had ever defined fitness. Every time I hear that, it, I just think of fucking Austin Powers, where Dr. Mm-hmm. Evil, like my father invented the question mark. But outlandish uh, claim. Every, <laughs> every, and you, you, you can uh, agree to this, but like every sports scientist, whenever I've read any of their like doctorate, master's work, anything, the first thing they do is define their terms of what they're doing. And fitness is like, the universal term like this is how I'm defining fitness. Right. So yeah. Crazy. Yeah. Lunacy. (laughs) So Chris, we were able to connect through Donnie Mabe. So I believe it was over text message. Just get a random text from Donnie. And I know when, when that number comes through, this is somebody that we, we want to connect with and meet. Well, I'm more bummed that when you were at the symposium, you didn't come over and rap with us, or me at least. You know, I know that was true. We, we meant to get over there, but you guys had so much stuff going on. We didn't want to bother you. And you had speakers, uh, and oh, yeah. I knew we were getting ready to do this. And, you know, I love Austin so much. So if it means that I have to come back to the cave, <laughs> Dude, you know, I might be able to swing that. So right. you're, you're more than but, welcome. Because you, you were at UT for a minute, right? Yeah, my first job after I finished my doctorate was at UT, and that's how I met Donnie. Ah. And they've done uh, Travis of Lantes, who who's in my role now, has just done phenomenal, phenomenal work at getting their labs set up and understanding the process behind testing their athletes and evaluating them in a valid and reliable manner and giving that feedback to the coaches. And then really just saying, okay, is what we're doing actually working? And I think Texas has taken that and have gone light years ahead of a lot of universities. So Donnie and that whole organization, UT has just done an absolute phenomenal job. So, um, I respect Donnie a lot. I mean, as a leader, he's, he's one of the best. So I don't know. You guys know Donnie really yeah. well. So mm-hmm. just saw me the other day. But yeah. Great guy. So walk us through your athletic career and the motivation to find research and, and dive into one specific topic to then empower performance, which led to UT and then back to your alma mater. Right, right, right. Um, so I guess it, my athletic journey started back in high school, you know, as a typical, as a small town rural kid, you know, played football, played soccer. I was in the marching band, wrestled, played tennis. Uh, so I just did everything that I could possibly do. And when I found out, you know, uh, after going to UK uh, as a kicker, punter slash tight end, I know that's kind of a weird combination. I get there and realize I've never really trained ever because I've always been playing something. And so first year I get there, I get hurt. So you get thrown into a division one training program. I, I mess up my shoulder, get some overuse injuries. Next year, I mess up my knee, have another surgery, uh, get into physical therapy, get hurt again. And so it was just a constant, you know, you know, get better, get hurt, get better, get hurt, get better, get hurt. And I was trying to figure out, you know, why, why does that happen? Cause there's, there's several guys, you know, that this happens to I was like, why does it happen to these people? And some of that's traced back to, I was never really trained in high school and then, uh, get to the university of Kentucky and then get overtrained really quick. 
why do I don't recover like some other people? So that started kind of the thought process there. Um, and then, you know, as I transitioned from my undergrad uh, to my master's program and into my doctoral research, it really just became a, this thing of why do some athletes, you know, do a lot better? Like, why is there some people that are just genetically gifted? Why are there some people that uh, are not? Uh, traditionally, strength and conditioning coaches are just going to call them responders versus non-responders. Well, I didn't like that term. Like, why are these non-responders? I always thought it was hard worker versus not hard worker. Well, and that was the other thing, but you, yeah. you know, you see the guys that are really, really hard workers, but are still kind of in that same boat that never really get better. And we just kind of lump them into the, um, they, they basically they fall through the cracks, right? Sure. They, they end up either getting hurt or they end up quitting. And so, you know, all those things kind of got into like the mix of like, all right, Chris, what do you really want to research and, and where do you want to make an impact? And fortunately at the time that I started my doctoral program, Eric Corm, who was with Florida State. Uh, came with Mark Stoops, and his first year was the year that I started my PhD program. So as a former uh, student athlete, I just went into the football training facility and met Eric. He's our high performance director, and I said, "Hey, you know, I'm a PhD student here, uh, former football player. Anything you got, love to help out." Um, and so he handed me Omega Wave. I had no idea what Omega Wave was, never heard of it, and so that just became my little thing that I took off with. And really, Omega Wave um, was what opened up my view of what you know training was what because to understand omega wave and heart rate variability you have to understand the roots of adaptation and the roots of periodization and how we got from point a to point b from the soviet union how the soviet union even came up with periodization so i mean that started with some cold war stuff where the soviets were basically like all right we can't beat you in the battlefield anymore and we can't blow you up with nuclear weapons so we're going to find another area that we can show that we're dominant that happened to be the olympics um, and so out of that, they invested tons and tons and tons of money into athletic sport and development. And so out of that came anywhere from periodization to anabolic steroids, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So the roots of how we train athletes like linear periodization came from the Soviets. And so I started thinking about, all right, well, how do Soviet Union athletes compare to athletes in the U S today? Well, Soviet athletes were told when to wake up, when to eat. When to train, basically they lived in this perfect little vacuum where they, they limited outside sources of stress beyond what they could, like mental stress might be a little bit different. But if you compare that to our common college athlete now that has exams and girlfriends and now social media, I think that's our new wave of, of stress. These kids put themselves in this environment where they're you know, self-edification is based on how many likes they get on a picture or a tweet or their social media profile. And it really messes with their mind when they put a picture up and maybe only gets like a hundred likes versus their other friend who gets a thousand likes for, for something else. So, dude, I you know, feel like throwing up for these kids. I, uh, I'm <laughs> so glad that social media hadn't really taken off. Like one, I'm glad that it didn't like cell phones and all that didn't exist. I mean, when I came home from college, like I would have to go home and check my message machine. Uh, yep. in college cause you know, we didn't have cell phones and somebody leaves you a message, <laughs> but I can't imagine the stress that these kids have to be so far underneath the microscope. I yep. mean, let me, let me just think about it. If you had a bad game, right? You'd wake up in the morning, you might read about you specifically in the newspaper, but think about that kicker for the bears. I mean, oh. think about Cody. Oh. I mean, 
I mean, the amount of, I mean, you can't, you can't ever live that down. Like you can't just like a couple of days no. later. Okay. Not, we forgot even, about he, it. Not he even needed Venmo. He, oh yeah. They were sending him money. <laughs> he needed to literally grow. Like I, I told Luke, I'm like, that dude just needs to walk out, get in his car and drive somewhere and never come back to Chicago. Yeah. I'm a, I'm a bears fan, Chris. So, I mean, but not like, uh, I mean, I got some buddies and I know that city is full of fucking diehard guys, but even I was like this poor fucking guy. And you know what, yeah. for the most part, uh, and I'm just going to make this general deal, nothing, take no offense, like kickers and punters are usually very unique, uh, interesting people. And like yeah. just, just because of the way of the structure, so like in, in the, those of you guys listening, like the... So like we'll come out for practice and like those guys come out. And when you say we, bit. you mean like the normal players. Yeah. So like kickers and punters <laughs> come out too and they'll be there in like the pre-practice because like normal like pre-practice, whatever. And then they like are there and then they disappear and they usually go in the fucking, I don't know, hang out in the locker room, go lift weights. But they're not really at practice. And then they come out uh, for special teams or like if we're going to have like a field goal or like, you know, whatever it is. So there's like a weird thing where they're not really at the practice as much. And like you don't see them, like it's it's a weird like thing. So then, it's not like your offensive line guy who you're sitting in your in the room with every day and you live with and like every piece and he has a bad day. He's like he's within the team. They kind of purposely sequester these dudes. So all of a sudden they do bad like that. Everybody's like fuck this dude, kill him. And that's even dudes yeah. on the team because he's not really in the fight the same way. And I never knew why teams did that. Or why they allowed that? Like I would have made those guys are more of a, more integrated within the team. So if something negative happens, the team just doesn't like look at them as outsiders. Yeah, no, and that's and that's common. Even even here at UK, our guys they go out in the beginning. We have a special teams period in the beginning, a special teams period at the end of practice, and I don't know what they do half the time because you just see them walk into the training facility, and some of them go lift weights. Uh, some of them go play ping pong. Some of them, you know, they all do the kind of their own thing and then they just show up at the end of practice and then there you go. So it's not much has changed from, you know, when you played to what they're kind of doing now. So, and even as a specialist, we played racquetball. We had three racquetball courts in our training facility. So uh, I definitely, <laughs> I can relate to, to those guys. But yeah, you know, for him, I, as soon as he missed it, I just felt instant, instant sorrow for him. And that, you know, the, the effect that that's going to have him on him, not only from training standpoint, but just every time he goes out for a kick, his cortisol levels just have to go through the roof until like he just gets to a comfortable place where it's like, okay, I finally lived that one down. So, but, you know, back to that point was like just all these things now, you can't get away from anything. You have no release and it, it's always there. And so now we're, we're, our research is really focusing on, you know, how do you motivate these kids? How do you decrease the stress outside the training facility um, to help, you know, elicit a positive training adaptation? So, and the hard thing about social media is, is we even start to kind of think about using it towards our advantage. Okay, well, you can't make it go away. Like it's a monster you can't stop. So how can you use it for your benefit? Um, and so we're trying to create these Madden profiles where the guys that come in and live. So we'll have iPads on the rack guy goes up there, just like how you guys use trainer. Up. I love it. And that, that part of it is like, you know, we can do this in the weight room too. Cause it's extremely motivating for me as a like, hell. I had a new PR. I didn't even know it. Um, go over to the rack, you hit your, your working set. And it, they basically have a Madden profile that we, we compare them in percentiles compared to everyone on the team, everyone that's ever been at UK. And then basically people that are going to the combine when their strength goes up, their overall rating for strength goes up. 
you hook that to their social media followers and say, hey, uh, Josh Allen's strength just went up by X amount. And then their social media followers can say like, comment on it. And basically, you're, you're harnessing the social media in a positive way uh, for good things that happen in the weight room. So it basically gives them a bigger stage. And while I hate social media, it's just kind of one of those things that you just try to harness it the best way you can. So the problem is with our Madden profile is people like John, like you were saying, is like I might not have been the strongest guy, but there's intangibles that are really hard to measure. So it's like if I give a guy an overall rating of a 75 because of his, his power, his size, his speed, but he goes out there and just crushes it on the football field. There's things like like Benny Snell, for example, our one of our all time leading rusher. If you looked at all of his like stats, he's average for running back. But there's something mentally for him. Like as soon as he gets hit, it's almost like it just pisses him off so bad that he wants to run through someone's face on the next play. And that's how he's able to get so many yards after contact. So those are the things that the Madden profile doesn't measure or hard to measure. So. Um, the guys that go on and they have very successful NFL careers opposed exactly. from the guys who are the combine warriors. Um, you know, like I, I was always confused why the combine and, uh, I think the combine needs to be reevaluated in a way, but really the combine came down to something almost like a, it was like a check, like, yep. Hey, you know, when this test is going to show up, here's the, here's all the tests that we're going to test. And so when you went and you performed, they almost did like a check, like you're the person we thought you were, you know, because they've been watching film for years. So like Mm -hmm. this was their chance to meet you, put you in a stressful situation. Are you the person that we thought you were? Uh, But invariably, if somebody has like the Mike Mamula effect where they come out and like blow it up and next thing you know, they go from being a late round pick to a first round pick. And then that person's no more, uh, you know, couldn't be more surprised than anybody else that they're there. And I remember Mamula being like, fuck, dude. Like, I just blew up the combine. Like, he's like, you know, and he was the first one to tell you. He's like, I'm going to go out there and play hard. But, like, I I don't know what these fucking people are expecting. Like, (laughs) he was like, I was a late-round pick that just happened to blow up the combine. Next, you know, they draft me one overall and expect me to be the second coming of, like, you know, of of, of Jesus. And, like, it's just not the case. And then people were mad at him. And uh, I I just, it's, it's, uh, it's a flawed system. Um, you know, it's just, to me, I think it's just a flawed system, but it's how they've done it and they're not going to change it. So, yeah, no. So I want to get into your paper that was released in 2015 and especially adaptation. So we all adhere to the said principle and it's one of our driving principles for our education and our, all of our programs, right? We reverse engineer from the athlete's goal and create the program, but you did a great job of breaking down adaptation and different schools of thought that will lead a coach to develop a program. So I'd love to compare and contrast a few of those and see if you can explain adaptation to our coaches out there. Right. So, you know, I think everything starts with Cellier's work, you know, uh, people will attack it and bash it. But my thing is like, if without Cellier, without general adaptation syndrome, you don't really understand that the body receives a stress you have basically an oh shit moment by the body and saying, I don't like this. All right. So you have your alarm stage body says, okay, these things happen. Uh, I went and lifted weights. The weight was too heavy. I have muscle damage. I know this guy's going to go lift weights again. What do I have to do? So that's where you have the compensation phase. Your body's, you know, making more muscle. It's making neural adaptations. It's becoming more coordinated. And then basically you have compensation. Then you have that adaptation, super compensation. So, 
and in the process of what you just say, your training principle of progression, because basically if you keep training the same way, your body gets adapted to it and you no longer stress, et cetera, et cetera. The problem is with general adaptation syndrome is it's very, 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 you know, its scope is too myopic. I mean, it's too small, right? If, if you think about it, um, you know, there's tons of adaptations that are happening at the body at the same time. We, we look at it and I think people look at super compensation as like, I'm going to go train and then my whole body is just going to super compensate all at the same time. But there's different systems uh, that are super compensating at different rates. Um, and the other thing is like, so with general adaptation syndrome, that was just kind of the start. And then someone else came along and, and developed allostasis, right? So allostasis kind of takes into, all right, we have someone that went and weight trained and now we've got uh, someone that has an exam and then, oh gosh, he just broke up with his boyfriend or girlfriend. Uh, and then he ran out of his money because we don't know how to manage our money in college. And, you know, the stresses are become cumulative, right? And so what people don't realize is that when those stresses accumulate then the body has to decide, you know, what am I going to tend to first? You only have so much fuel to adapt. Um, and so and that was where theory of the dominant comes in. Sorry. So if I took you and I didn't feed you for three days and then on that third day I took you and took all your clothes off and threw you out in the cold, are you going to be hungry or are you going to be cold? What is the brain going to do first? Right. It, it, Hunger or cold? Uh, I think hunger. So it's a, a cold. Oh, because it's, I would it's think the newest cold. one? Yeah. So what's the most dominant threat to the organism? So like the brain's going to reorganize its thought process and say, okay, like I've got enough fuel, enough, well, depending, I mean, you're pretty shredded. So maybe you only have fat stores for a couple of days, but most people are 50,000 calories in fat stores and you got muscle that's going to try to save cold you can only stay on the cold for so long before things really just start shutting down so your body your brain's going to reorganize and say okay the most dominant threat to me right now is cold i'm going to go try to find heat once it satisfies that need it's like okay now i need to find food now to relate that to a college athlete is okay college athlete comes in here he trains or she trains and okay now i've got this test well depending on the student because it's funny my first thought process was just because you have two exams uh, their, their mind and their stress is automatically going to go to the academic piece. Well, some of our, uh, some of our guys care less about academics. It's all really specific about what they care about, like what actually triggers them. And so allostasis really takes into consideration, you know, the mental side of it, like what causes this person to stress. And it didn't really hit home uh, to me until I had a long snapper that was here. And um, when I was testing as a Megway, it was like he was never recovered, always in the red, 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 red. And I was like, dude, what is going on with you? And he was telling me a story about the service at a restaurant he had on a Friday night. And I'm like, dude, you carried that anger through Saturday, Sunday, and you're still pissed off about the service you got at a restaurant on Friday night. And so for him, things that triggered him were a lot different than things that maybe have triggered our running back, you know, to him, the running back might be triggered by social media or his girlfriend or whatever. The point is it's, it's very individual to that person. Um, so this what, kind of let, what's that? Not to cut you off. So what you're telling mm -hmm. me is that you can effectively, I mean, short, you know, like a, a hyper jump or short circuit recovery through the mega wave by adopting, uh, you know, a fairly, good mindset of not letting shit bother you like uh, like water off a duck's back. 
Exactly. So the perfect I was going to spring into that is that's what led me to things like, okay, if this guy has issues of handling stress, wouldn't it just make sense if I can reduce your stress outside the training facility that you're going to have more stress inside the training facility and have a better response. So I started looking at things like meditation and float tanks and things that really activated parasympathetic nerve activity. Uh, and so I got into a partnership with Headspace and uh, they were gracious enough to give us some codes for three months. So with the same guy, he was religious about doing his meditation in the morning, completely flipped his um, Omega score. So he started getting to the yellow and then started getting into the green. He gained 13 pounds that off season because he was able to just manage. And the thing about meditation is you don't realize the things that are happening inside the brain. So the things that if, if you can imagine there was a, if your threshold is here, basically meditation just raises that, that switch. Like when does, when does shit really piss me off? It just raises that level. It gives you a longer fuse. Uh, and these guys didn't realize it, which was hard to get by them because they sit there and they meditate and they're at the end of it. They're like, okay, that sucked. Like I don't feel anything. But over the long term, they started to see the results of like, I don't get mad as often, I don't get triggered, whatever that might be, which in turn can have a positive training response as well. So basically, the student athlete doesn't have the tools to deal with stress when they show up and it, it has a Correct. negative effect on them. Yeah, that's um, that's a, I mean, it, it's pretty true. I mean, you think about uh, like I was just laughing the other day. I still have nightmares that I am showing up to take a final. Yeah, no, like recently I had that. No, I've, I'd had one recently that I showed up and I was in my class and I hadn't been to it was a math class and I hadn't been there the entire semester. And I showed up cold for my final like to take this course. And I remember thinking, waking up and being like, that class was 20 years ago and I'm still having bad <laughs> dreams about it. Some post-traumatic stress. Well, but I like, I mean, and it, it goes back. I mean, dude, um, uh, as you're talking about this, I keep replaying different individuals that I played with and my roommate in college, a guy named Kevin Doherty, uh, he benched 425 in high school and yeah. was really strong. Every single day that we showed up uh, in college, he got weaker and he barely benched 275 when he was a senior at 23 years old. So at 17, he benches 425. And I remember him just telling me over and over again, I just feel so tired all the time. Like it's too much training. And, you know, in college, we kind of subscribed to like the big monkey thing where we train six days a week. And he was yeah. like, I lifted weights two to three times a week in high school. And I squatted six or 700 pounds. I benched 425. I was this all world player. And he's like, I just never feel my legs are under me. He's like, I was leaner then. And, and I just would tell him a bit, though, you're being a big pussy. And I used yeah. to talk shit to him. I'm like, you need to work harder. You need to want it more. And these standard things. And he just never recovered. And yeah. um, I don't know if it was the stress or maybe the fact that I, I also have a theory that what you do prior when in your younger years helps set metabolic pathways that allow you to be successful later. So I think that if you can do some high, uh, you know, some high motor, high volume type stuff younger, it mm -hmm. puts some, creates a more favorable, uh, environment for later in life. And, uh, I also have read a ton on super compensation and I think that it's the rebound effect is not consistent among individuals. Like some people right. dig themselves a big hole and only come up a little, some people dig a little bit of hole and it goes up through the roof. And so I just, yeah. it's, uh, it, it's one of those things where I think super compensation, even though, you know, people write about it is so personalized to the individual. I don't even know how you'd ever chart it. Yeah. And that's the thing is if you look at any of the research between block periodization, linear periodization, undulating, it, 
every one of them will say, okay, this method was better and then another paper said, no, this method was better. I really think it depends on your population that you've got in that study. Um, you know, we talk about the, the super comp. I gave a presentation not too long ago about when super compensation theory isn't so super. And it basically dealt with that specific thing, meaning there's no way that you can say in 24 hours, I'm going to get to here. And in 48 and 72, I should reach super comp based on groups of averages. It's just not feasible because uh, you don't account for basically the allostatic or all the other stresses outside of that training. Um and, you know, and that's kind of why the beauty of a mega wave or any HRV or any type of assessment that could be like Brian Mann's uh, velocity-based training is a form of fluid periodization. So if you don't account for some sort of readiness of where the body is, then you're just kind of, you're just blindly following a training system without knowing if the body's ready to accept that load. So... Well, what, um, um, in terms of wearables, I mean, obviously, uh, you know, when I got contacted by Omega wave, like the units were for teams and they were like 10,000 bucks and I couldn't yep. wrap my head around buying a $10,000 unit for myself. But since right. now they have an app and they've made the, gone into the consumer market, which I, mm -hmm. I should revisit. I just haven't. Um, but in terms of like the Omega wave and some of the other devices with wearables, I'm sure you've tested them all. Uh, yeah. what, what's the skinny? Like, um, I mean, right, right now I've been testing the whoop band. Uh, we, yeah. uh, I've used the, the Quora ring. Um, mm -hmm. uh, we, we were supposed to, we got hit up by the CEO of the will Ahmet, uh, the CEO mm -hmm. from whoop. And when I told him I was a continuous user for over a year and I have all this data and questions, he didn't want to come on the podcast. Yeah. Dun, dun, dun. So, uh, all of a sudden they were like, Ooh, he's no longer available. And the reason yeah. being is I have pages of questions like to the point where like I've done steady state cardio and I've seen it drop up and down. Um, I know that like, uh, that it doesn't record workouts, but yet I'll like, um, uh, get in the shower. It's hot. Take it off. Go put it on when the skin is hot and it'll record a workout. So I mean, like how they're collecting. I also know that their heart rate variability is totally off. I think what it does is it takes a snapshot with just one recording and then it gives you the whole deal. Because I was waking up and doing Joel Jameson's heart rate variability first thing in the morning, and it was never yep. consistent. So there, mm -hmm. uh, I also have been, you know, not only weighing the the uh, you know total caloric load, but using their total calorie burn. And then mm -hmm. figuring out, hey, this is how much I've eaten. This is how much I've burned over the course of a week and then charting weight. And it's not yep. consistent. So, I mean, yep. the, the issue is, is like for the wearable. And I think it's I think it's super cool. I just know that none of the statistics yep. are accurate. Uh, but yet at 280, 285 pounds, my wife at 120, hers is dramatically more accurate. So now I'm mm -hmm. like, okay, so if the, the thicker the arm, maybe the hair, maybe the more muscle mass, it doesn't read the same way. So then we got kicked yeah. over to the Quora ring because I know it, when I was looking at um, measuring uh, oxygen sat um, saturation, they do it through the finger because collecting mm -hmm. here isn't good. So then the collection side of a ring, I mean, there's there's so many variables for this stuff. And then Cal Dietz was great because Cal Dietz is like, just use the Omega Wave, dude. It's the fucking best. <laughs> yeah. So Yeah, and that's the thing is that you've got a lot of these companies that are entering the HRV space. And, and any time that I get a piece of technology on my desk, the first thing I look for is, all right, is it actually measuring what it say it's measuring? Is it valid and is it reliable? Meaning if I take it off and, and put it right back on out, take that with a grain of salt because HRV can fluctuate within seconds, but it should be reasonably close to what you just measured a minute ago. Um, whoop 
I, I love the concept of whoop, meaning, Hey, I've got strain in a day. I need to recover X amount. I think the concept is phenomenal, but their measurement is flawed for a couple of reasons. One, because of the way they measure, it's not technically heart rate variability. Heart rate variability is an, is an ECG reading by, you know, by what it is. And so they're doing it based on basically the light and they're getting the pulse from it and they're calculating HRV that way. Um, they use what you just said is they take one and they base that one HRV off of, and then they say, okay, now your recovery went up or it went down. Well, they, what they do is they do like a two week rolling average and that becomes your baseline. Well, what if I was sick during that two week baseline? What if I was in a high air period of stress in that baseline? Uh, and so these are the things that I was kind of coming out with. I mean, I said, uh, the last thing that's really flawed is if you look at heart rate variability, they're, they're working under the assumption that if I have a lot of um, heart rate variability, meaning RMSSD is high, then recovery is good. Well, I've seen tons of examples where you can get into parasympathetic overreaching, which basically means I'm, I'm, I'm under recovered and my body is essentially just, I'm going to slow everything down that I can because I need to save these resources for adaptation I'm still trying to make. Uh, and I see it all the time and I see it in myself and I only get six hours versus eight hours of sleep. My HRV will go up because I'm parasympathetic kind of, I wouldn't say overreaching, but dominant, whatever you call it. Well, they're saying your recovery is higher. So I'm going to go in the gym. I'm going to crush it that day. Right. So you, it's really dangerous when you have a piece of technology that's saying you're ready to go when it's measurement is off. It's really, really scary and really, I wouldn't say dangerous, but it's, it's not setting you up. So Omega wave looks at, and this is definitely not a commercial for Omega wave, it's just more of a, why I like Omega wave over some of the other things. Um, it, you know, it gives you your standard HRV measurements, the 10 that are from the North American Society of Cardiologists, and then it gives you your five Russian parameters. Which I really enjoy the Russian parameters of Omega Wave a lot more. Um, you know, it's valid and reliable. Uh, we've seen it uh, in some published research. Um, space medicine research by the Russians, like back in the 1950s, this stuff was around. So it's, they've, they've done a really good job of making their product something good. The limitations of Omega Wave that I found with our athletes is it requires them to come in. And even if it only takes five minutes, that's a big deal for them, especially in their morning routine of going into the locker room, getting dressed. They want to come in and work out. They don't want to sit down and lay down on a table for five minutes. So I know a lot of other um, NFL teams are going to things like HRV for training because it's an iPhone app. So it's basically like, hey, guys, when you wake up in the morning, grab your phone, put your finger on the camera, get your HRV not the most valid, not the most accurate, but it gives those guys some measurement. It's better than them not coming in and doing their Omega Wave at all. Is the, so, uh, is the app, is the commercial uh, market for the Omega Wave at least fairly consistent with the team one? Oh, absolutely. So the measurement's the same. Um, you know, the validity and the reliability is the same. Everything's the same. The only thing the team offers you is like, so if I'm like in my setting, if I want to look at 50 guys, it basically provides you a database, it provides you like uh, a visualization, it organizes all your athletes into one area. Well, couldn't you just give the athletes uh, access to through the app and saying, hey, uh, you know, we or but then I guess you couldn't collect it if it wasn't done in your in, in the space. So I'm, I'm well, just they've thinking since like, added, they've since added their coach system. So like for a gym owner like yourselves, let's say you've got 20 people that train in your gym. Like you can add this, Hey, you want to do a mega wave? We'll charge you 200 bucks for the kit, another 150 bucks a year for the subscription. And as a coach, you pay, I think, I don't know, 1500, 2000, I'm not sure what it is. And then that way you get an iPad that populates all the people that test. And so you can see their readiness uh, of all the people that are coming into your facility that day. 
So there are options for, so I don't even really think they do the team system that much anymore. I think coach, the iPad system is, is probably the way that most of them go nowadays. The, uh, the other key factor I've always found with Omega way or not with the Omega, but with the heart rate variability, and I've measured it mm-hmm. just about any way is, uh, one was some form of steady state, like, you know, uh, like work. So I, I found that I purposely put myself in a position to always be within a red zone. And then mm-hmm. I was continuing to do that when I was consistently in the red, under recovered, crappy sleep, whatnot. If I was going out and maybe like, uh, you know, 10 to 15 minute walk or getting on and doing some aerodyne right before bed. Uh, Mm -hmm. regardless of how shitty it was, I always could kind of trick it to get into uh, a green zone. And I knew I was under recovered and I knew the sleep was shitty, but there was a weird thing. And the other one was, uh, I was messing with calories. Like I was keeping protein high, cutting calories real low and trying to see if I could put myself in a deficit to try to test this stuff. And I knew that it was like pretty consistent that if I under ate, uh, regardless Mm -hmm. of how recovered I was, you know, I, I could never get a, a good score with that heart rate variability. But yet if I overate too much, so I kind of figured out that there was kind of a sweet spot for calories. And um, there was just so many little pieces to tweak on it. And that's where yep. I kind of get into it. And I think like, especially with your athletes, like, you know, obviously you give them a score and you look at this, but how many variables do you get into where you're like, okay, or is it just kind of a list? Like, Hey, you're, you're in the red. Why are you in the red? Uh, did you yep. go out drinking? Um, have you taken a new supplement? What does your sleep look like? I mean, you know, are, are you having stress? Like, mm-hmm. you know, Oh, you know, and the guy's like, well, I ran out of money. I really haven't eaten in two days. And you're like, well, that's why, yep. you know? So I just wonder like, <laughs> like, how do you, is it a systematic, do you have buckets? Like how do like, how do you control that? Or more importantly, like, how do you uh, test that, or I mean, just too many variables. I- There's a ton of variables. So, like, you a lot of times with these kids is they won't even tell you the real story of what's going on. Um, either they're embarrassed, or so a lot of times they don't even know where their stress is coming from, or they don't know why they're not sleeping. A lot of things they don't even know what good sleep is. They don't know what good nutrition is. Uh, in your case, I can tell you, as we get older, basically our our gas tank gets smaller. So our just part of the aging process, and it, it frustrates the hell out of me because when I wake up, I've noticed that little more little things affect my recovery than when I was you know younger. Even as, like when I was like 26, 27, 28, when I first got it, I was a lot more consistent in my readings now that I've actually my stress should have gone down with, you know, having a job, steady income, food, et cetera, et cetera. Um, our kids, the majority of the time it comes down to sleep. And how old are your food. kids? How, how old are your kids? The, no, no, the 18 to 22 no, year old, the college you, kids. But do you have kids? No. Oh, so okay. that's another stress that I don't have. And even still my, and, and if you look at the research, oh man, I like, can't wait look, for you to have kids. I saw you wearing a wedding ring and I'm like, man, I hope he doesn't have kids. Cause when you have kids, you're, you're going to, you're going to be like, what happened to me? Yeah. No, it, next I, research paper. Yeah. There you go. The you want to destroy somebody? Variability. Yeah. So, yeah. uh, it's the kids here, are my, my, my athletes, it's usually my first two questions about if they're off. What did you do? Like, what, how was your sleep last night? What time did you go to bed? And what's kind of been your diet the last two or three days? Like, are you even getting enough? And even with our guys, it's, you can get into like the macros and the micros with them. Just getting them to eat is a win because depending on their background, some of these guys come in here, maybe only eating one meal a day, depending on where they came from, the, the socioeconomic status, their background. And that one meal was McDonald's. And so when we give them grilled chicken and green beans and veggies that they think it's terrible, they won't eat it. And it's not because it's not good food. It's just they've never yeah, had things like that. It doesn't taste like that. So we have a whole host of challenges of just trying to get them to eat three meals a day 
And then with that, then we start working on like getting calories in and trying to do that. So a lot of times when, and while I'm a big fan of, of doing this at the college level versus like the NFL, because I think genetically at the NFL, these guys can get away with a lot more because they're genetically best. And, dude, you know, we had a first rounder I not too long with, ago. I played with I, the dude, not, not to cut you off, but I played with a dude uh, who every day for lunch ate a, like a large chicken McNugget thing. And he would yeah. roll them in salt and drink a massive like Coke. And uh, yeah. he, I'm not kidding. He was so shredded that I could see his heart beating through his chest. <laughs> and like, he, he, he like, it was it, like, he, he was probably like, I, I remember them being like in training camp being like, you need to gain some body fat. Cause like, if you lose just a little bit, you're going to cramp. And he's like, I'm trying, I've been eating all this stuff. And he was still 3% body fat. Yeah. Just, no, that's, that was the thing is like our guys hard to get buy-in when you have a, a guy like so bud dupree was here in 2015 16 ended up going to the first round of the steelers and you know combines were off the charts he was six five 270 pounds ran like a four five forty jumped 42 inches jumped over 11 feet in the broad like just genetic free and so we're doing as a mega wave two guys come in they both did their mega wave at the same time one mega wave was terrible for an athlete and buds was perfect and the guy got up and literally I thought he was going to throw the iPad at, through the wall. And he said, this is bullshit. I was out till three o'clock in the morning with this guy getting hammered. His says he's good to go. And mine says I'm not. And I'm like, well, look at Bud and then look at you. And and this is even a hard pill for me to swallow as, it, you know, when I train is like, you have to play the genetic card you've been dealt. Um, there's, there's a minimally effective dose and a maximal recoverable volume for every individual. And like, for me, it's not going to be nearly the same as someone like Bud. You could have done anything to Bud, thrown any type of exercise, any combination of, of Metcons, and he would come in the next day and be perfectly fine. Um, and, and that's the thing is you, the hard part about athletics and the hard part about strength coaches, well, how do you deal with guys like Bud versus a guy like my long snapper that couldn't gain weight because he was pissed off at the service he got on a Friday night. Simple. And that's, you know, you do, yeah. you just, uh, let bud do whatever, like just throw him into the program and take credit for it all. And exactly. then obviously, which is what strength coaches do. Um, I've seen this yeah. for years. Like we call it like the curse of the gifted, right? Like, uh, you know, everybody wants to know what, you know, this guy's doing. And that's why I've, dude, I've always said you can't, talk to NFL strength coaches and anybody that tries to, to put them on a pedestal. Like I called the house out on this when we met him at that Dave Tate thing. I was like, dude, I, all this stuff is bullshit. I was like, dude. And, and he knew it. I'm like, man, like you can't base a program off of the world's big genetic freaks. I, yeah. I watched Brian Waters, who I played with, who was, you know, uh, all pro the whole deal. He didn't touch a weight for six months. He went home and came back and was so far out of shape. And I think I watched him bench like 555 or 545 or something. And he hit three reps on it within five seconds. Yep. And I couldn't even do it for one. And he just, I mean, dude, he hit it. It was like, bam, bam, bam. He put it up and he kind of like looked over. He's like, you can do that? I'm like, no. He's like, fuck you, I ain't training. <laughs> and like, uh, you know, just a fucking genetic freak of human. And like, hadn't trained, had everything. Still went out and made his conditioning test. Still went in and fucking played. Didn't get hurt. Still played 16 games. And uh, I was like, man, I got to like... I got to do everything to sharpen the blade just to be able to fucking get to the end. And these the other dudes are stacking the deck against themselves and still fucking get farther. And so, like, yeah. what am I going to do? Am I going to be upset about it? No, you realize that in the grand scheme. But then there's a strength coach somewhere that's like, oh, yeah, that's that was my, all fucking because of me. Yeah. And, and yeah. like, you know, like I'm uh, that, that's why with with NFL strength coaches, like that's why I call them get back coaches. 
That's what they do. Yep. They fucking yell at the fucking guy, you know, the fuck, get back, get back. I'm like, here, yep. get back, coach. You come in and your job is to not hurt the individuals and just let fucking playmakers and genetic freaks be fucking genetic freaks. Well, yeah. Chris, let's get into the fluid periodization, right? You get scores. Bud has that score. The other athlete has this score. What are the challenges now for the strength coach to take this information and adjust the program for both of these guys? And Chris, before you yeah. go, talk, talk to our listeners about fluid periodization, just the concept behind it, de definition, et cetera. Okay. Yeah. So a lot of people that have even heard me speak or read my dissertation think that fluid periodization is specific to Omega Wave. Uh, fluid periodization is just simply, I have a plan, right? Linear, undulating, whatever it is. And I'm going to be flexible with it, given the information I have about the athlete's readiness to train. So examples I give Brian Mann with VBT, he does assessment on the central nervous system. Okay. If he's doing the drop-off method, he's going to go until this athlete's speed drops off at this weight. That's fluid periodization. Or I'm going to keep going until that athlete. That's fluid periodization because you're basically altering the volume or intensity of that uh, what he normally would do based on some sort of test. You can use wellness. I, I know you guys would train heroic. I love that you guys put wellness on there. Uh, I'd love to see a trend line so I could try. I don't know if maybe I'm just missing it. Um, well, we can get that, that data for you. I think we could pull some stuff yeah. for you. We might know some people. Yeah, we know some guy. We know some guy knows a guy. Yeah. Train heroic guys. Yeah, we might um, know some people. So it's wellness, VBT, uh, some guys do jump tests. So like they'll have every guy with like a, a PVC bar and they do like some sort of central nervous assessment. We used to do vertical and, you know, jumps. We, we uh, Todd Rice had us do vertical jump and he tested our max vertical jump and you had to be within a certain percentage. The only yep. problem is if you weren't in your certain percentage, he was going to fucking break his foot off in your ass. Exactly. And the problem so, with vertical jump yeah. is like anytime you ask an athlete to do a one time max effort, a lot of times, depending on their functional state, they can get there. Like then the case that I use is like your brain, right? Your brain overrides your readiness depending on the motivation. So if like you could be dog sick, flu and everything, someone comes and points a gun to your head, I guarantee you could run faster than you've ever ran in your life because you had a high motivation stimulus. So I have a hard time with something that's a one-time max effort thing to assess readiness, but even that's better than just come in and train. What we have written is what you're doing, no matter what. We, we also um, tested uh, grip. So we had uh, was a uh, torque meter. Is that what it's called? No. Yep. Um, uh, mm -hmm. Yeah. To, to measure. Yeah. The dynamometer. So we would yeah. test grip strength and that was our form of recovery. The only yep. problem is, is that we would do it. And even if it was in uh, like a not advantageous range, Mm -hmm. they would still fucking put their boots on our fucking neck. Mm -hmm. So like, I like, I just always remember being like, why are we doing all this? You've never changed the fucking workouts. And it's like, well, what if you're, what if you're not recovered on game day? Are you not going to yeah. play? And so the, there was a weird danger of being like, and that's where I, I sometimes get into this stuff. Like, let's say I wake up in the morning on a game day, it's a big Sunday NFL. And all of a sudden my Omega wave or my heart rate variability is in the fucking toilet. Yep. Are, are the players mentally able to override that and be like, even yep. though this number looks bad, I still need to go out or they come in and they're like, Hey coach, I can't do it today. My fucking score is a bad deal. So we shut their, we shut their screens off so they couldn't see their scores during the season for that very reason. So if they came up and asked me and they could be in the shed and I'd be like, no, you look great, man. You're ready to go get after it. So I mean, we'd lie to it, but on the back end, we know, okay, this, this game, he's not in a good spot, but this game is all right. His Sunday and Monday recovery protocol need to be on point. Meaning that game's going to come at a much higher cost to him. Sure. Therefore nutrition, sleep, et cetera, et cetera. But 
Yeah, and that, that's basically just the concept of fluid periodization. You take some sort of objective piece of information about the athlete and you make a logical training decision. And sometimes coaches will say, well, I have an eye for it. I can see it. Okay, that, it, that's fluid periodization. If your eye is that good, uh, and some strength coaches have that ability uh, to look at an athlete and say something's off about him, I'm going to make an adjustment to his or her um, training program. So um, the reason why I chose Omega Wave is because it's, it's fairly objective. It's hard to cheat. And it included an assessment of that their DC potential is really what separates a mega wave from a lot of the other uh, recovery tech, meaning the brain dictates everything. And basically your brain controls all movement, all adaptation. And when things slow down in the brain, you can, you know, that everything else is going to follow suit with it. Well, what about supplementation? I mean, uh, was there ever anything that you came across that tricked it in such a way, like for example, uh, Adderall, um, mm-hmm. you know, Ritalin, uh, beta alanine, uh, creatine, I'm thinking like things that are some form of neurological agent and really the, uh, um, you know, we've done pretty extensive work with the U S military and especially the army. Uh, they have a terrible problem with, um, you know, energy drinks. So I like, I yep. know like, you know, general Cameron, I discussed it like energy drinks, guys go on deployment, they're drinking monsters with this big issue. And I know that a lot of the guys that we were working with were, you know, big into the pre-workout and their big question is like, well, what kind of pre-workout do you like? And I'm like, nothing. Yeah. Like if, if I have to, take a spoonful of this or a cup of this just to get myself into a position to train, then that means that the hole is already so big that like, how, how do I backfill? So if anything, uh, I would love to see, you know, and it's like, dude, if if you got to basically, you know, hit the shaker and get the pre-workout or the knocks explode 9,000 just to get out there, we got huge problems Mm -hmm. and the same shit in the NFL. I mean, uh, you know, before the games guys are over there taking a bunch of weird shit. And I remember thinking like, uh, dude, like that's going to be a fucking big problem. So yeah, no, I just, it, depending on when they test and depending on when they use a supplement. So if I wake up in the morning and I do my assessment right then, most anything like, like an Adderall or an energy drink, half-life of that so short that if they do it in the morning, like anything they took the night before will be out of their system. Yeah. But so does I it affect say, them? Like, uh, like does the, uh, the, the stimulant load affect the body, like the parasympathetic, sympathetic nervous mm-hmm. system in a negative way, even far after once it's already left the body. So depending on how long they've taken it. So just like caffeine, your body will either become, becomes desensitized to it. So I took pre-workout every day. Eventually that just becomes part of its routine. Now I can tell you that people that just start taking it, the cost of that training session is going to be much larger because you're going to have a much higher sympathetic nerve activity basically you think about you just look at heart rate right i'm burning through a lot more calories that session is going to come at a much higher cost based on the the amphetamine or the caffeine or whatever it is they're taking um and and, you know adderall is 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 big in college you know legally illegally whatever you want to say our kids we know our kids take it um and a lot of times it's because they put themselves in a situation where they didn't do something systematically like a paper or a test and they're cramming 24 to 40 well that in itself is a stress. And so it's kind of like, if we were looking at it from a research standpoint, it's hard to tease out. Was it the Adderall that's causing them to be jacked out of their mind or is it the stress of the exam? So it's heart rate variability is so fickle that there's so many things that can affect it. And I think it's why you have a hard time finding research on specific uh, things that affect it. If that makes sense, because like I could take a supplement and then five, like five minutes later, find out, you know, someone in my family passed away and just completely wreck a training session. So, um, 
you know, that's why I don't think that we've even gone down that rabbit hole. We just kind of look at, and, and you can Omega wave or anybody that does it will tell you, you need to take a measurement really two times when you, when you wake up and that gives you an idea of like, okay, what has my body done in the last eight hours to recover and how am I when I wake up? And if you don't train till two o'clock, you might want to test again right before you train to say, okay, maybe from eight to two, something has happened that has just triggered um, sympathetic nerve activity. And it's going to affect that training session. That doesn't happen. Mm-hmm. For recovery with it. I mean, for example, is sleep more beneficial than proper nutrition? Is proper nutrition more beneficial than uh, like meditation? I mean, I'd like, I, I wonder if you look at like, hey, like what's the low hanging fruit? And you're like, hey, uh, you know, we've consistently seen that those that sleep at least eight hours a day have consistently higher heart rate variability and bigger mm-hmm. omega waves than those people that sleep six hours a day. Uh, those sleep. people that get like, I was like, uh, one, one of the biggest things that I saw for performance was, uh, getting vitamin D levels. Like if the vitamin yep. D levels were awful, just by supplementing up into a, an acceptable dose of vitamin C, I mean, uh, vitamin D, uh, that was like a huge, like I, like I, I noticed it, like it just, everything seemed more clear. Everything just seemed to work better. And I, yep. and like, that was a big thing, especially playing like in Kansas city and Philadelphia where the sun didn't come out for six months and you're inside mm-hmm. this building all day. The only time you go out is at practice. And a lot of times you're in this dome. And I remember them coming in and doing some vitamin D testing. And it's like, everybody was super deficient. Yep. And uh, like, I was like, fuck, I'll go to the, I'll, I'll go to the health food store and get what I need to get. And it was, it was almost like, um, seasonal depression kind of a deal. Um, so I just wonder in like the hierarchy that you've seen, like, do you start with the low hanging fruit and kind of go from there? So, you know, we, we've seen the same things with vitamin D. So we have vitamin D for our athletes now getting them to take it is another thing. So it's out form. So in our, our, basically our nutrition station, you've got any, any and all type of protein, uh, vitamins, vitamin D, just your, your generic multivitamin. But the biggest thing that I always try to preach them is sleep. Sleep is ultimately going to be the best recovery tool and it's the cheapest and it's free, but it's just so hard for these college kids because you think about yourself as a student athlete, it's like, like our schedule this spring, we get them up at, some of the guys get up at six for workouts and we go from six to 12 in groups of training sessions. Then they have basically 12 to whatever time for class. Then you got tutors, then you got study hall, and then you get to go back home. Well, think about a lot of these guys want to be a normal college student. So they end up staying up late with either people in their dorm or their apartment just to be normal. And so, you know, they're up till midnight you know, playing Fortnite or doing whatever else normal kids do just to kind of satisfy that need. So it's like a big thing for us to say, Hey man, you're getting four hours of sleep. Let's try to get to six and let's try to get to seven and let's try to get to eight and see what that does. It's interesting though, that, you know, sleep and nutrition, because nutrition, if you're not putting in what your body needs, you're not going to recover. Do you guys have a gonna- training table all year round? We do. So, so, so is it three meals all uh, like they can eat breakfast, lunch, and dinner all year round? Yeah. So the way that they categorize it is we can give them two snacks, but a snack can be a Jimmy John's, like a 12 inch Jimmy John sandwich, which is a meal for most people. And they can supplement that stuff from our snack bar, which is like goldfish and little popcorn and kind bars and all this other stuff, whatever we put in there. And then we can give them one meal, which is more like buffet style, which includes like a main dish, several sides, et cetera. So they basically have breakfast, lunch, and dinner because of breakfast, they'll have like an omelet bar and that's a snack. Oh, wow. So it's just one isolated item. Dude, when uh, I was in college, they, have, they gave us one meal, which was dinner only during football season after practice. Yep. So it was like exactly. just a, I think it was uh, uh, 
what was it? We didn't get it on Sunday. We didn't get it on Monday. So it was Tuesday, Wednesday. And then I want to say like, yeah, it was, it was bullshit. Like, and I remember thinking like, you know, the NCAA assholes were, were so <laughs> awful with this thing. Like, I just remember thinking like, like most of the guys and I, I felt, I mean, I, you know, thank God my parents kicked me a little extra dough, but I mean, at the end of the month, I mean, like we used to go to this place, Steve's Korean barbecue where they give you a big thing of chicken and rice for like four ninety nine. And I remember guys going in there with their last 20 bucks and they got a couple days just buying like four of those and eating those. And that was like all you had or, or, Hey, we have these recruiting uh, recruits coming in and all of a sudden you're like, Hey, I'm going to host. And you would yeah. tell your boys and they would all show up to the dinner, just hoping to get a dinner. And it's like, yeah. uh, you know, we live so far below the poverty line that uh, you're, you're like looking around and they're showing you this, you know, multi-million dollar weight room they're building or this building. And you're like, dude, we got 20 bucks and we're eating top ramen. Like it just, it, yeah. Yeah. They've come a long way in nutrition. I mean, what, I mean, even just from the protein regulations in the past couple of years, now that we can give away protein, that's not, you know, packed with 50 grams of carbs. I mean, we can actually, cause it used to be, you couldn't give protein in a greater proportion of like 20 to or 25% of total calories. Yeah. And so these protein shakes were just, they were, they were awful in terms of your macronutrients. And now we're able to, well, it was like that Gatorade stuff. You mean, you remember exactly. it was like a hundred grams of, of carbohydrate, like 15 oh, grams gosh. of protein. Really? And they would give yeah. you these shakes and then they'd be like, ah, and then here's this power bar, which is like chewing uh, fucking cardboard. <laughs> And like, yeah. you'd look at it and you'd be like, ah, dude, like I just had like 150 grams of, of car, you know, at the time. But then you're thinking, okay, so what else am I going to eat? I mean, for me, uh, yeah, I mean, like I've, I've regaled these guys for stories for all like the bullshit that we used to pull off in college, just trying to yeah. find a way to, and then you're like, Hey man, I'm trying to get to 300 pounds. So then like, you know, Costco was like, you know, frozen chicken breasts and, you know, I'm yep. there with the George Foreman cooker. I mean, it's just like was such a shit show that I remember like I always go back and I'm like man like like this should be something that's so easily solved but I think what they're so worried is that like one team is going to have this distinct advantage or somebody's going to cheat but then you got a team like Nebraska who you know they wow you know figured out yeah. a way to do it and I think the big teams yep. are but yeah no yeah that's it right there that Gatorade recovery shake stuff mm -hmm. it's awful um that's yeah I, I just constantly think for for most people and this is really what we get into with our own stuff is you know, everybody wants to like kind of go to like the top of the pyramid to like the smallest margin of error. And I'm always uh, big on trying to get people to go to like the, you know, the maximal return for the minimal investment. Like what's the low hanging fruit? Uh, right. You know, uh, people constantly ask me like, oh, you know, like what supplements should I take? And I, and I'm always going back to like, okay, okay. Like we can discuss supplements, but those are supplements. Like let's figure out what the primaries are. Are you doing, you know, are you following some form of nutrition protocol? Are you actually measuring your calories? So you're not just kind of doing the, the fluid nutrition, which I call where it's okay. like, I'm going to under eat one day, but then I'm going to overeat the next. And you get into this constant, like back and forth method. So exactly. it just feels like for your guys. And then there, I guess you're in a more detailed environment because they got to show up every day. So yep. I guess you can control more variables. So, yeah, we try to control as much as we can around the training session. These guys go to, they go and they enter their customized smoothies that our nutritionists make for them, have them form right when they finish their workout. So we've gotten a lot better in terms of getting guys to get something around the most important time of the day for them, which is before and after their workouts. And at that point, you just kind of have to go on faith and say, just go out and eat something, continue to eat, and then, um, you know, and preach sleep. This is why a lot of big teams are trying to monitor sleep, but it's just one of those things that we, 
what are you gonna do with that information? Okay, they slept four hours, you know, what are you gonna do with it? So it's, there's tons of things that we can do, but yeah, like I said, the biggest thing that we've noticed is sleep, nutrition, and not surprisingly, but our high character guys have more consistent omega wave scores, meaning they're, they're doing what they're supposed to do outside the training. So they're not missing class or taking care of their. When academics. you were in college, would you been okay with the, with the coaches knowing how little you slept? Well, and that's kind of the danger. Like we, we've gotten some kickback from the, from the athletes back when, and here's what happens is these athletes on the surface and based on their GPA might, might not appear to be the, the top of the Harvard, you know, class, but you know, when we started giving them, we used fatigue science uh, to monitor their sleep. And these guys were giving their bands like, hey, man, you going out tonight? No. Um, oh, here, where my band? <laughs> so you have like one guy has nice. three bands on. And, you know, when, when they want to be crafty, they'll, they'll do it and yeah. achieve the system. So we're like, oh, you got eight hours sleep, but you're a mega wave. It's terrible. What's going on? And so that's, again, that goes back to being very careful of what you're measuring, how you're measuring it, and knowing what it's measuring is actually measuring what you want it to. Well, so uh, what about like, um, and you know, and this is, you don't have to answer any of this, but like, you know, I know on some college campuses, I went to Berkeley, uh, there mm-hmm. were drugs and like, you know, people smoked marijuana. I mean, there was a bunch of different illicit drugs and uh, I played with a bunch of dudes that did a lot of drugs. I just mm-hmm. wonder, uh, <laughs> you know, like, is there, I don't know how I put this to say it, but like you start looking at the Omega wave and you start looking at all these factors and you're like, what else is going on here? Yeah, like outliers or, yeah, just, or, or, or just like inexplainable. You know, yeah. Or, or like, uh, you know, I mean like I, my roommate in college, dude, he could have joined a reggae band. He smoked so much. Weed. <laughs> like I used to joke with it. I'm like, dude, you're going to be in, but like, they're like the whalers are going to come pick you up, dude. Like you need to stop. And like, I always th- like thought about, I don't know, maybe his stress level was so fucking low. Cause he was baked all the time. But I remember yeah. thinking that, you know, if they went, if there was any form of neurological testing, they would have been like, dude, this dude's a potted house plant. Yeah. You know, so, you, you know, you never, we've had athletes that we could probably go and say, yeah, they're probably, we know our guys. So typically guys like that are extremely, extremely parasympathetic. The hard part is, and, and my administration would kill me if I know I said this, but it's like, I mean, you look at the NFL, like the guys that are smoking now, like there are potential benefits of using it. It's, it's just a matter of when they're using it and how much, if they're using it before they come into train, you're going to have a negative training effect. Meaning basically if I'm doing a lot of high intensity interval type training that the heart can't, you simply can't activate your sympathetic nervous system to a level to supply the oxygen and the blood that it needs to sustain that workout. Sure. But on the flip side, think about uh, the parasympathetic reactivation post-workout or reducing sure. outside stressors after your workout. So there, it's one of those things that. Shit, man. Yeah. Uh, my training partner was Kyle Turley and I played with Kyle and Kyle is a huge <laughs> proponent. I mean, he, dude, he, uh, uh, I remember him, you know, him getting fucked up and them giving him pills and being, and me being like, yo man, you need to go fucking smoke some weed or something, dude. I can't be around you. You're taking these fucking pills. Yeah. And, uh, you know, he's since have gotten really big into the medical marijuana, moved to California. He's got a big CBD business and is really at the forefront of this idea of like, you know, we know that, you know, there's a lot of problems and just through observation, and this was purely observation, I, you know, and I'm sure that maybe somewhere somebody could validate it, but I'll tell you this from my NFL career, um, the guys who I observed that took the most amount of pills seem to be the guys that have the most amount of problems once they've retired. 
Now, yep. I'm, I'm not saying that like the pills were the issue or maybe the fact that something within, I don't know, their pain threshold or how it was reactive that they needed the, the medication to be able to do their job. I don't know how it all works. It just was a weird observation that the guys that I, I saw just chewing those things like breath mints because I never really took any of that stuff. Like, yeah. like I was never a big pill guy. And uh, I just know that the guys that were seemed to have the most amount of problems post. So yeah. uh, my yeah. thought was if you could have maybe given them another option, maybe mm -hmm. they might not have had the same issues. And then if you, you know, you think about the in inflammatory effects and the skull lining and it's some really jiggy stuff. Yeah. And like I said, the, the pills versus I, we're, we're so new into this research that I know it's trending in a very positive way. Physiologically, it makes sense for me, like the CBD and some of the, the marijuana, the medical marijuana that, that actually can cause a lot of good uh, for a lot of people. So uh, maybe I can propose a study to my administration to see if we can get some medical marijuana and effect on heart rate variability for some of our athletes. Well, I mean, <laughs> if uh, it, like I, I know that they just went 50 state legal with the CBD, uh, yep. you know, if you wanted me to hook you up with Kyle and his company, they have a pretty good product. I don't know how all that works, but I, you know, I'd, I would never want to put myself in that situation. But uh, yeah. I, I always thought that if, um, if they, you know, and, and dude, you, you played the game, man, you know, the deal, like, uh, you know, guys get fucked up. They come around, they hand you a big box of, or maybe it's since changed, but I remember them coming and giving us a, you know, I get a, a, a bottle of pills and it's like 99 with like five refills. And I'm like, fuck, I yeah. just sprained my ankle, dude. Like you, Absolutely. Like, and, uh, I think that they, things have since changed because of a lot of issues. Like they don't give toward all shots like they used to. They used to be able to hand those things out like breath mints. Right. So um, I just wonder if, you know, you're in a, such an interesting place because you're measuring all these different biomarkers for performance and almost how do you kind of, you know, like gauge that stuff when there's all these extraneous factors from, you know, big hits on here, here, you know, pre-workout, uh, you yep. know, stimulants, you know, maybe illicit drugs, alcohol, you know, I mean, all these different factors. And it mm. seems like, <laughs> seems like a, fucking arduous process to have to try to measure this stuff and then make sense of it. Yeah. And so, like I said, we try to keep, we try to keep things just to the morning, just to assess the recovery. Now what happens in between morning and the workout, we're willing to kind of take the chance that it's going to have like a, not as much of effect and then basically deal with it the next day because there's simply, there's simply no way to measure everything everyone's individual response to any individual stressor that affects heart rate variability. All I'm really interested in is, what do you look like today? And, you know, if I can dig a little bit to say, okay, where, where is this lack of recovery coming from or where is this stress coming from? And if I can fix it, I can, if I can't, we just kind of deal with it. Um, and on the long term, because people think, and, and I had the same mindset too, if I don't do exactly what's written on this paper today, I'm not going to get better today. And, and it simply is you basically live to train another day is kind of the motto that I took with it is say, Hey, I'm supposed to do recovery on Wednesday, but my body needs recovery now. So I'm basically going to take Tuesday's workout. I'm going to do it on Wednesday. I'm going to see how I am on Thursday. So you look at it from a, a much bigger view and then you just kind of go from there. So would you make the recommendation that, uh, I mean, you know, think about like I was thinking for my kids, uh, like waking them up in the morning and being like, okay, we're going to do your heart rate very, or, uh, like your Omega wave with my daughters. And then, you know, and then being able to see like, are you ready to go be able to do things? I mean, I think, uh, I like, I, I just keep thinking about it. Cause I got twin little girls that are seven. I'm like, I think I want to get this Omega wave and start using it on them. Yeah, no, it'd be interesting. You know, it's one of these other things too, that I keep thinking about is 
at that age, what kind of psychological, long-term psychological effects are you having? Because there's, there's going to be days where you're going to have to get up and go, right? You're going to have to do your job. Um, and by taking a test and it says, oh, I'm not ready today. Like, what are the long-term effects on the psychology? Like, you have to have a lot of buy-in from your athletes. I mean, they really have to understand what you're doing for them not to take advantage of that. Um, I wouldn't say take advantage, but not to say, oh, I don't feel good today. I'm not going to train. Well, no, you're going to train today. It's just that we're going to alter some of the things that you're doing. And we kind of ran into that in the beginning. Um, you know, our first year using a mega wave, oh, this guy's in the red, he's getting on the bike while the rest of those guys are out there doing mat drills. That didn't go well at all. No. So like from a team standpoint. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, you know, we, we've learned to say, all right, there's days that we're doing mat drills because we're not maybe trying to elicit a physical adaptation as much as a mental and a team adaptation. And you're going to do it and it's going to suck and it's going to put you in the hole, but knowing that you, you're ready and you're going to survive but you need to get sleep tonight. You need to get nutrition. So we focus more on, you know, you're going to do this workout, but you're going to have to take care of yourself right after. Otherwise you're not going to be ready to go the next day or the next day. And eventually if you keep down this path, you're going to get hurt. And so that was one of the first lessons we learned in the first year. Some days we, we look at it and we take note of it and we give that information to the athletes simply because you need to know this because your body's not in a good place and you need to, spend maybe 10 hours in bed tonight and get more food and see how you're at tomorrow, but you're not getting out of mat drills. You're not getting out of gaspers um, because like players started to resent people for it and get pissed off when they were training. Yeah. You can imagine like, what, yeah. the, what the hell is this guy doing? No, you know, and, and, dying. Yeah. And uh, especially when the guys who are the best players are the ones that are leading from the front and then not missing. And then a guy who might not be within that hierarchy or like yep. maybe a lesser player is all of a sudden not doing it. Um, mm -hmm. I've seen, I've seen teams turn on individual players. Like, I, I mean, I'm sure you've seen it too, like fucking fast where all of a sudden yep. the guy's like, Oh, he, he's all right to like, no, nah, he ain't fucking right. And like yeah. all of a sudden that mentality of like, he's in practice and like that, it just like, I always think dude, like the tide turns very quickly if you do shit. And, and the biggest one is if you're not carrying your load and not doing what everybody else is. Um, exactly. I, uh, when I played in the NFL, they never would give me an off-season workout bonus. And so I was pissed off about it. So I never trained one off-season workout with any of the NFL teams. And yeah. so I remember I would show up for the mini camps or all the other stuff. And uh, at first, the guys were like kind of a little bitchy about it until I was like, well, all right, you got a problem? Let's go. And we would go into the weight room and I was stronger than them. I was able to do more. And I'm like, hey, man, I would gladly be here, but these cheap motherfuckers ain't giving me any money. So I'm going to go home as my protest. And I think exactly. people saw me come back in better shape and do all these things. And I never had much of an issue with it. But, um, you know, it, but it was different if guys that were paid big offseason workout bonuses that didn't show up, those dudes were extremely looked down upon. And yep. so it was, uh, it, it was just a really interesting dynamic. So I, I fought. I tried to get one. They would never pay me for it. <laughs> <laughs> I got you. Know, you. you know. You're going to do it. Yeah. So, uh, you know, we, we have a interesting demographic that obviously listens to this podcast, but also the the athletes that we work with and the, you know, many thousands that we work out remotely online. 
as, as I sit there and I listen to this information, I always constantly am doing this kind of ping check of like, how could I take your research? And, you know, I was, I, I loved all the fluid periodization. I always called it inherent periodization, which right. meant like, I'm going to make changes based off of how the work goes. And, you know, and, uh, I used to call them gambler sets where it's like, you got to know when to hold them, when to fold them, when to walk away, when to run kind of a joke. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you know, how do you put that? And you're in a very specialized environment. Like, how do I extrapolate the information that you're giving us and you're writing into like, let's say the, the, you know, guy who's training in his garage or maybe within a small gym and a small group, uh, you know? Yeah. So like I said, fluid periodization can be anything from someone being very, very in tune with their body, meaning something's right. And I need to go at it today. Meaning, all right, Johnny Wad's got me doing three sets of five, you know, if I feel good, I'm going to do five sets of five. And you can go from as simple as that all the way up to buying your own Omega Wave unit to using your wellness scores to seeing, okay, yesterday I was a 3.2 and now I'm a 4.6. So let's get after it. Um, you know, there, there's a lot of different ways that you can do it. I know that if you if you have a box or something like simple things like, um, like the bar accelerometers are getting a lot better in terms of like things that you can start doing velocity based training. Um, the fact that you guys use train heroic. So you have like auto regulatory, uh, progressive training. So like Brian man talks a lot about that and like what was his foundation for BBT. They could do simply things like that. All right. On my third working set, I'm going to let that dictate what my fifth working set is. And you guys do a really good job of that. Meaning you work up to, a five rep max. And basically yeah. you guys are already building in a little bit of fluid periodization and giving the freedom to say, you know what, my third set or my fourth set felt really good at my PR last week. I'm, you know, I'm going to go balls to wall and see what happens. I'm going to go 390. So, well, so I, I program uh, rep maxes cause one, um, I just like, it, it was, it was uh, kind of an interesting piece, but I remember in pumping iron when they asked Arnold how many reps to, to get strong and to put on muscle. And he was always like, well, it's the last one. If I do eight and I can do nine, then it's the ninth rep. If, it's, if I can do 10 and I don't do 10, I don't get the effect. And so yeah. I always liked rep maxes because I wanted the five heaviest move or let's say the, like a, a set of five, like a five RM. I wanted the five heaviest reps that I could perform on that given day. Cause, uh, we used to do these standard periodization programs like Todd Rice had. And I remember we, we did this Olympic lifting deal and it was like a six or eight week program. And I remember right around week three, uh, I came in and the weights were uncommonly light. Like I remember I was like snatching like 130 kilos and I think I cleaned like 165. And I remember, uh, I was like, wait a minute, like this feels really light today. And I remember thinking like, should I put more weight on and see how, how, how far I can go? But I, I was too, uh, I didn't want to deviate from the program because if I did, he would fucking try to rip my nuts off. Yeah. And so I waited to the very end to when we were supposed to max out. And I didn't hit anywhere near the numbers that I hit when I was within the training cycle. And I remember yep. thinking, like, I'm never going to make that mistake again. And the day that I come in and the weights are light, I'm going to fucking, I'm going to turn it up. And the day that's heavy, I'm just going to survive. And yeah. so that's kind of where I got away from the classical periodization. And the other thing, what I didn't like is like, Hey, we're going to test these one RMs. And then in April, yeah, well, we'll come back in June. Well, no, but we did these one RMs and then all of a sudden we had to keep these percentages over the course of like two or three months. And like, it, they, they just weren't accurate at the end. And it's like the weights got heavy. They, it was weird. Like we all got stronger, everything got light. And then there was like a weird period and then everything got really fucking heavy. 
And I remember thinking yeah. like, like uh, this shit was light a couple weeks ago. And so that's where I got into this idea of like, if it's light, I'm going to go for broke. And then that's where I got into the rep maxes. And then any of the uh, compensatory acceleration kind of uh, cat work or speed work with a percentage, I, I didn't trust the percentages. Like, hey, if, if I'm working, you know, and at the time we didn't have velocity-based training or like a, a accelerometer or, a, a, you know, we, we ended up with Tendo units. But then I could figure out like, hey, if I'm going to do dynamic work off of my percentage of one RM, uh, some days it was heavy, some days it was light. So then I realized that actually the percentages were only good for maybe 24, maybe at most 48 or 72 hours. Yep. And I and I actually got that from Louis Simmons. Like, hey, what you do in your your max uh, your max effort on a Friday is only good for percentages on a Monday. So I figured exactly. forty eight seventy two hours, and that's how I kind of backed into a bunch of this stuff. Just trying to you know, because how do you offer programming to a whole bunch of people you're not training with or seeing on a daily basis? Yeah. So no, I get that, and, and that was kind of like when I the whole concept of one rep maxing and. Being a scientist, I want to say, all right, we're going to do a pre-test and then we're going to do a post-test. I'm going to assess how good my program was. And it's like my strength coach at the time. And it's funny how I've evolved as a scientist, what strength coach, whatever it is. Like he used, because he's been in the business for, you know, 20 plus years. So he's seen a lot of stuff. He doesn't do pre and post-testing. He doesn't believe that on any given day, you're going to walk in and be able to hit a one rep max. And so from that, we've evolved to this kind of iPad system and say every day is an assessment. Every day is a test. You're going to come in and you're going to get after it. And, you know, if week three, you you peak out and that's your one rep max for the spring if you can't hit that again. So we do things that way. Uh, and, and so that kind of brings into that fluid periodization a little bit of kind of what you do. Like some days you're going to come into the gym and you're not going to feel it. Like, you know, you're going to work up to what you did, you know, two weeks ago and all of a sudden, you know, set threes and start feeling really, really heavy. And so, like I said, I think you guys have done a great job of harnessing that, whether that was, you call it fluid periodization, you can call it Johnny Wild method, whatever it is. I think you're <laughs> actually capitalizing it Move on the, the readiness of that athlete on that day. And it gives them structure and it gives them freedom, which I really like. Well, when, uh, when I was training for the NFL, I had uh, these performance matrix that um, I knew once I hit them, I was ready to go back and play at a high level. And mm-hmm. so I like um, train the whole off season to hit those numbers. And as soon yep. as I hit those numbers, I knew that like I didn't have to continue to push in that way and that I needed to work more on my speed or technique or movement. And so it was like, uh, I think it was, um, uh, I think it was, I can't remember. I, it whatever it was a four nine or 500 for five on the squat. And then I want to say it was like 400 for five on the bench. And I would go back and do that basically five times. So I do five sets of five, uh, and it had to do it like within 15 or 20 minutes. And then I, and then when I could do 10 pull-ups with 90 pounds between my waist, that was the other big one. So if I could do the 10 pull-ups with 90 and I could do those, it was like four or five, 500 for five sets of five back and forth within, I, I forgot what the exact time was. But um, once I hit those, and then, oh, then the other one was 585 for, for a set of eight on the RDLs. And I had all these numbers that I had hit at like when I had played my best season. And I remember writing them down. And as soon as I hit those numbers, all of a sudden I was more in kind of a maintenance mode because I knew that when we went into training camp, there was going to be a weird detraining effect. But then we were going to get some super compensation once it, towards the end of training camp. And then you kind of hit this effect. And then I also knew that... Um, it was not the intensity, but it was the volume that beat me up. 
So yep. I would always come in and still handle heavy weights all through the season. Mm-hmm. I would just cut reps out. Like if I was like able to do five or six with four or five on the bench, by the mm-hmm. end of the season, I'd still be benching four or five, but I'd be just doing it for one rep. Yep. And so it was yep. just this idea of like, I, I just knew I'm like, I don't get tired from intensity, but it's the volume mm-hmm. that kills me, which is so counterproductive because most people are like, oh, just do three sets of 10 of the lighter weight. And I'm like, dude, that's. Yeah. And even in the fluid and even in our approach, when we did the study, it's like, I always want to maintain my intensity, especially in season because that neural drive and the neural drive is what maintains muscular adaptations. Meaning I need to feel that heavy weight for the body to say, okay, he's, he's pushing some weight. I need to keep this muscle. The volume is where I say, okay, if you're under recovered or even if you're stressed, you can't handle that volume. Like if you, you're basically adding stress to a stress system. And so I'm just gonna say, I'm gonna stimulate, I'm not gonna annihilate, I'm gonna work up to one. So like if I was doing uh, Johnny White, we had rack pulls today. And so I'm gonna do, I'm just gonna work up to my one heavy set and I'm gonna cut it. Yeah. Um, if I'm parasympathetic, meaning, you know, I could probably handle all my working sets of my main movement, I'm gonna start looking at my accessories. Like those accessories are just to help my main lifts. Sure. So that's where I start pulling volume out of that. So everything that I did, I rarely, rarely, rarely ever cut intensity unless it was a, a CNS, like a DC potential issue. And then if it was a highly complex movement, like if we we're doing a lot of change of direction stuff where injury potential could be high, that's when I start, start lowering intensity. But very rarely does intensity ever get altered. It's always volume. Hmm. It's like, what is my minimally effective dose today? Uh, or you could say, what is my maximal recoverable volume? I like that more in the off season. What can I do the most and still recover? And then the in season it becomes, what is my mentally effective dose to maintain what I've developed in the off season? Amen. This, no, this is, this is some counterculture thinking, right? The old ball coach, they want to see the spreadsheet. No, this is a counterculture. We totally believe this. I understand. But <laughs> in the, the reality of division one college football, oh, this is counterculture. It, it is hundred percent. So you've got Mark Hill and you got buy-in from Stoops, but there's a lot of coaches fighting this battle. So you're mm-hmm. doing some presentations. How else can you put them in a position to defend, right? The, the intensity and the fluid periodization. And so a lot of it is a lot of these guys know, like, you know, even coach Stoops was a former player. Mark Hill was a former player. We've all, most of the people in this business have been around the environment. And it's very rare that you get anyone outside of that into this kind of environment. So they all know. So it's almost like put us, I think back to when you start telling them stories, think back to when you were training, there's days that you came in that you knew you weren't ready to go, that you had a crap day and your coach was just drilling you, drilling, drilling you. And you ended up having a terrible week. You couldn't push weight. And so you start to kind of frame it up for them. Like, think about when you did this. Um, and then basically, you know, I, I was fortunate enough to say, hey, let me test this in the summer leading up to our preseason where this is important training. Let's just see what the results are. You've got guys that are doing a mega wave, guys that aren't doing a mega wave. So basically your starters are using non-starters. Let's compare their their individual gains and results to their individual gains and results. And you see positive adaptations. You could clearly see a split line between the guys that didn't follow fluid periodization and the guys that did, you know, and and I was fortunate to have that opportunity because a lot of coaches would be like, yeah, no, you're not going to do that. If you think that one program is better than another, then everybody's going to do it. We're not going to split up our team, but you know, my point to him was saying, listen, we were going to do this anyway. So you're going to get these results regardless. And I'm proposing a, a benefit that his fear was that maybe they weren't going to get as high benefit as the other guys. But, you know, having that data and having the opportunity to show them like, listen, we, you live to train in another day. If the body's not ready, it's not going to recover. It's going to push them farther down and potentially lead them to injury. And think about the guys that you might save from pulling a hamstring 
or getting hurt that are going to miss two to three weeks of training, which means at the end of the summer, they're not going to get nearly where the, the, their other guy that trained for that eight weeks. And so when you start putting it into that perspective, you get a shot. But when they give you your shot, you better make the most of it. So I had to be pretty sound in the way I thought and the way that I believed. And fortunately, it panned out. Otherwise, I probably wouldn't be talking to you guys today. I'd probably be you know, <laughs> here, here. doing I mean, something completely different. I mean, uh, you know, uh, we'll link up the uh, the research. But, I mean, just it, to summarize, I mean, was it uh, – I mean, it, it, it was it night and day when you looked at it and it's like, man, we had, uh, you know, this offseason historically over the last five years, we've had X amount of injuries. And then all of a sudden you get into it and you kind of go into the, you know, what you're doing today. And all of a sudden now it's like 3%. I know yeah. um, uh, this is, you know, kind of a just a side story. But uh, years ago, I got hit up by an Aussie rules football team. Uh, their strength coach had followed some of my stuff and he said, Hey, can you help me formulate a program? And so I put together a program based off of, you know, they're running like anywhere from 10 to 15 kilometers, uh, a practice every single day. And then he showed me what they were doing. It was all this kind of bodybuilding, three sets, of eight, three sets of 10, three sets of 12. I put in a bunch of, uh, you know, speed work, a bunch of jumps, and then also a bunch of heavy, you know, nothing more than singles, doubles and triples and kind of this, you know, uh, inherent periodization or what you're talking about, fluid periodization off of some rep maxes. Like if they were able to do this jump they could do this and it was kind of a, a choose your own adventure a little bit mm-hmm. and i sent it to the dude and he i remember he's like hey can we get on a skype and he's like i feel like if i present this they're gonna fucking fire me and i was like yo man like i think this is what you need to do this is what i did and so he goes in and they're they were gonna fire him pretty much and he was they were like he's like just give me a year uh all of a sudden their injury rate went from 30 percent down to like under five and they end up winning like the, the, the championship and it's like this huge thing. And, uh, he goes to present this information at their conference and like, they were like booing him out because it was so far against the traditional norm and they kept doing it and did very, very well for it. And, uh, he was like, you know, thank you so much for, for opening our eyes. And I'm like, well, dude, uh, you know, everybody just wants to continue to do the same thing over because it's safe and it's what everybody else is doing. Yep. It's part of the herd, but it takes somebody to really break away and to put themselves out there. And, uh, I mean, you did it and, you know, at Kentucky and hopefully, uh, you know, I know it's your alma mater, she'll stay there, but you know, yeah. it, uh, it, it'd be interesting to see it go into a more, not just in one program, but to get this into a better effect. And I mean, I, I, I just always, and I, I mean, this is an ex player. Like I, as a dad too, I feel so nervous for these kids like with social media and I'm watching them and this and like their whole lives are in these situations and I almost want them to have the best opportunities to them, like the best training and not have mm-hmm. to do the stupid shit that we did. So no, it's killer. Yeah. No, no, I get it. Yeah. Hopefully, uh, you, you, your twins are seven years old. Yeah. My little girls are seven. My little boy is almost three. Oh, okay. Yeah. We, we can hold off on HRV for, it'd be interesting though. Be uh, interesting dude, uh, no, Wellborn's not holding off. Are you kidding me? Uh, Cal- <laughs> He's like, I, I got to get a meet Omega uh, waves for Christmas. Cal- the girl's got to sit still for five minutes every morning. I don't yeah. think. Yeah. Uh, dude, my daughter's like little girls are so different, but, uh, Cal Adit is pretty funny. He came over to the house and we were hanging out for a day and he uses all this stuff on his kids. And so he'll like wake up and his kid will be like, you know, the Omega waves down and he's got this whole, uh, like, uh, this whole uh, book of like, if this, like take this. So he's got like this whole supplement routine where if your, your heart rate variability is down in this way, you can take this to kind of, I mean, he, he mm-hmm. found ways to short circuit it. And yeah. uh, I always think if, if I can, if I can short circuit and cheat the method by taking a supplement or doing something like, I mean, maybe that's good, but maybe it's bad. 
But yeah, yeah, he was telling fear, me with his kids. My yeah. fear on short circuiting is is like so. What, what's the underlying cause? So it's kind of like you think about chiropractors, for example. I go and I get adjusted. I have a temporary fix, but whatever that underlying cause was to cause that asymmetry, if we never fix that, sure, then we're just gonna get right back in alignment. I think with heart rate variability, it's so sensitive. Like you can do things. Like if I say, okay, I had a guy that was very sympathetic, dominant, very stressed, had to meditate for five minutes, did his test again, dramatically improved, but you know, what's the timeline that it takes for him to get back into that non-readiness state? Is it 10 minutes or is it an hour? It's kind of like, that's always kind of the fear of tricking, tricking heart rate variability because ultimately the brain always wins. Sure. Um, so, but yeah, like kid, I, I can't imagine kids nowadays and I, especially for your seven year old daughters, like what they're going to go through, like how different is it going to be for them? Than it was for us and i was just on the front end of like when facebook i was one of the first people to have facebook because you had to have a uk no or a college yeah no big deal i was one of the pioneers <laughs> of facebook i practically invented it but um you know and just seeing how it affected us in the very early stages to how it's really affecting our guys now like i mean how what, what's the next five years going to look like so hopefully rebound yeah. pendulum swings back. Oh. Hopefully Kentucky football championship and people. Hey, start listening. No. <laughs> I think I, I like, I think that when something swings too far one way, it swings back. Uh, and like, I, I was just reading something how most kids under the age of like 22 right now aren't on Facebook because their parents and all their, you know, parents, friends are on Facebook. So it's not, yeah. it's not considered cool anymore. So Snapchat, where they think that like it disappears, where it doesn't disappear or fit or Instagram or these other ways are, have become yeah. like much more, you know, strategic within a certain demographic and Facebook's yeah. kind of like an old technology. So. One of the biggest thing that I've seen with social media platforms is people trend towards Snapchat and Instagram because there's less political, less like less less things that are going to trigger you. Like, so if you're extreme Republican or extreme Democrat, you don't get on there and see your friend that's a Republican saying something or your friend that's a Democrat saying something. So a lot of people just get on that because they just want to look at pictures of somebody's dog doing something crazy, you know? Yeah. Uh, Food, dogs, well, and butts. The, yeah, there are a lot of butts on Instagram. Thank God. Uh, the, the one thing that kind of blows Is that me, your handle, Luke? What, Food, no. Dogs, <laughs> no. Is uh, I didn't. Are you looking it up? I kind of fucking hate Facebook for the fact that uh, I really didn't, want to know how stupid some people were like i have friends and i'm reading this stuff and i'm like i would have been better not knowing that you were this dumb and like more or more importantly you feel comfortable perpetuating this nonsense and like it's just um i I always thought with like more connection and like the internet and all this that there would be like more humanization and it's Mm -hmm. almost like i'm like uh more people are detached but they're searching to be offended it's a I, I just didn't foresee this in any way, but it's, uh, I feel terrible for these kids, man. Like, I just feel like the, like the big one, like, you know, you meet a girl, you go out like that happened to Edelman where he was sleeping and that girl like snapped a picture of him and was yeah. like, oh, I just went home and banged him. And you're like, <laughs> I like saw that. And I was like, Oh my God. My wife's like, what? Like, why is that bad? And I was like, are you fucking out of your mind? <laughs> she just like, she's like, I can't believe you're this upset. I'm like, dude, like that's, how, oh my God! Like I can't imagine yeah, bro code, that's, like yeah, the opposite of bro code, yeah. slay, slay code. Yeah, like uh, just getting outed. Like I said, that's so terrible. the next the next wave of training is not going to be from the neck down. It's going to be from the neck up. So. Yeah, yeah, fair enough. Well, I mean, uh, so 
is there a point like where, you know, Kentucky football has a, uh, you know, three day kind of almost like symposium type deal where you bring in your players and you're like, these are all the problems that you're going to face. And here's some ex players. Hopefully you don't get up there Chris Carter style and say, you know, if you're going to do shit, you got to have a fall guy because that's what got rid of the symposium. I don't know if you remember that, but. Uh, oh yeah, no. the NFL symposium, not the Power Athlete Symposium. No, so so the NFL had the player, had had this symposium, which was like had all rookies had to go to, and it was a kind of a big deal for I, I had to go, and you you get fined unless you go. And Chris Carter got up there and was like, you know, if you're gonna go out there running the streets, you got to have some dude in your crew that's the fall guy, which means he's the guy that you've paid to take the rap for shit. And exactly. while a very good. Not the worst advice. In yeah, the world. yeah. I mean, not bad advice. You probably don't want to throw that out there with video cameras and stuff. Yeah, so, yeah. They no, got rid absolutely. of that piece. But nothing, nothing. Anything you say anymore is it's public knowledge. I mean, you can't hide from anything. So, uh, but we do like for we try to do our best. We bring guys in the beginning of preseason, and they it's it's actually kind of comical as they for a week they go through all of our guys' social media accounts and just find things and bring it up in front of the team. I mean, we got guys that are liking, you know, porn sites to like just all this crazy stuff talking about like things that they've said to a girl on the internet and just, you know, and it basically talks about like, Hey, your social media account is your brand. And the way the things that you put onto your social media account, like NFL teams are looking at this, Yeah, you know, they're looking to see what kind of character, what are the things that you're liking? What are the things, because, you know, this is becoming predictive. Just like I said, I can predict the guys that are, have high character are going to have more consistent omega wave scores are going to have positive adaptations in the gym because they take mm-hmm. care of themselves and they don't let a lot of outside things affect, um, you know, what they do. So, you know, you, you we're trying, but it's just, it's so much, so fast, always changing. And then at the end of the day, it's, it's a drug for these kids. It's a, it's a place that they go to get, you know, praise. And it's also the same place that go, they go and they get just broken down by fans and fans just, Exactly. Power at the radio episode 272 with Donnie. We talked about just this and how dangerous it it is for recruiting. And that's one of the Mm -hmm. things that coaches are starting to look at is find your social media and determine if, you know, Mm -hmm. this athlete sitting down on their couch and getting interviewed is the same person that, you know, displays their life online. Well, and even if you're a D3 all-star. Companies look at it. That's my backup Instagram handle, by the way, guys. Check that out. <laughs> oh, for real. I thought you were food dogs and butts. No, that's your backup. No. <laughs> I'm serious. D D three All Star is your backup. Why? In case your McQuilkin got hacked. Yeah, yeah. Your burner, so do you spell it like D E E T H R E E? No, D I I I. Oh, I thought it was <laughs> All Star. Get the D All Star. Yeah, that's a that's his other backup. Oh, that's his other one. That's <laughs> his backup, backup backup. Getting the D All Star. Uh-huh. And this is why I love power athletes. All right. Yes. <laughs> well, this isn't a rabbit hole. We're on topic. Yeah. That's a punch. Uh, <laughs> all right. I'm trying to think. Is there any other questions that I can fucking forget or smat try to suck out of you? No. All right. Well, we got the technology piece. We got that. It's hard to really be a high level fucking baby. Kentucky athlete. Yeah. Uh, what else? Wait, any any other difference between in season and off season besides not showing the athlete their scores? So big things that you take into consideration to kind of guide the the strength program or the sport coaches. Yeah. So 
the hard part about in season, so you're definitely in season. We don't we don't let them see their scores because at the end of the day they're still gonna have to go out and do their job, right? Um, and you just try to empower them, like to say, okay, you need some extra recovery. So Sunday, Monday might look different for you versus someone that didn't. But the hard part about in season is you've got guys that are second and third string. So you're having to pull in like their catapult data, for example. What was their load in their game? What was their internal load? So what was their meg wave and how you track that? So in season, it's just all about trying to get them back up to a reasonable level. It's rare that we ever change practice plans because again, if you're pulling reps from a player and, and we've done that in the past when they're really bad, but usually it's very apparent. They're actually physically sick, running a fever, those type of things. Those are easy, but I'll always outweigh what is the cost of pulling a guy back in practice mentally in season versus the physical, because at the end of the day, these kids will rebound. They're young enough. They're going to rebound. And our practice is set up in a way that our Tuesday, Wednesday, are going to be kind of our tougher days. We have a walkthrough on Thursday and then we stimulate them on Friday, meaning we do a run through on Friday. Almost inevitably on Saturday, they're good to go. No matter what happens Monday through Wednesday, giving them that Thursday basically is a walkthrough and that Friday is like a high tempo, like get them running, get the CNS back up again. Saturday, they're almost always ready to go. It's tend to in season, I let things ride unless someone week by week, I start to see a little bit of that, meaning every game becomes a little bit harder to recover by. Um, and that's when I go back to my catapult data, but it's interesting in football. And John, you can probably relate to this is your whole off season. You train hard, you lift hard. And we're starting to see this in our lineman data is that when we get to camp, you remove a lot of that stimulus, right? You're not lifting as much anymore. You're not you're being as explosive as much anymore. And then even in the NFL now is, you're not coming off the line of scrimmage nearly that you would in a game, right? So, I, well, the problem is, is that the game changed. Uh, shit, man! I remember when I was a rookie, uh, we had we had a buy in preseason, so we had 42 days of training camp, and I believe mm-hmm. about 34 of those were double days in pads. Yeah. So, I mean, not- like the amount of hitting, and then I played for Dick Vermeil, where we had these two, three hour a day full padded practices every single day. And Dick Vermeil kept talking about, you know, we're filling the tank and we're like, there's a fucking hole in the bottom. I mean, <laughs> uh, so like I, and, and then all of a sudden that new CBA came out and they, they limited the amount, like you can only do one padded practice a day and yep. you can only have, I think it was like over the course of training camp, like 12 padded practices. So they really limited this stuff and uh, people were like, Oh, isn't this great? And I'm like, no, this is fucking awful. Because yep. what's going to happen is one offensive line play. Uh, you don't learn that and walk through and you don't learn it. The only way you learn it is by nine on seven, one on one, full speed drills, like in the fight. And then the other thing, which and th- this was another observation, the guys who were consistent in practice and played almost like the like uh, like I, I guess I could call it like like you almost had like a beat down that was consistent. The problem is, is when somebody would get hurt and all of a sudden they got too healthy or felt too good they always came out and would get fucking hurt again. And I, yep. and I like the only analogy I ever heard was like the, uh, the Bulgarian Olympic lifters would like train themselves into this like constant fatigue uh, place. Whereas if they ever got hurt, they recovered too much and were effectively able like, like hurt themselves. And I think yep. that's what I saw in the NFL was that guys were almost too healthy. So when they were going out and they got to game day, 
they would come off the ball, hit too much, and like they were just. That's where I saw the more to, uh, the bigger injuries. I also think yeah. uh, for some reason, this is purely another observation. Uh, I don't think guys are training as hard as they used to just basically off of the physical stature, like the amount of guys where I'm watching NFL Sunday this week who did not look physically impressive, didn't have a set of arms that were hanging outside the jersey where I'd be like, oh, that dude's got some triceps. He looks Except like a guy, some weights. Khalil Mack. Uh, those guys always are. But to actually see an offensive lineman, I mean, I, these guys all fucking roll their eyes, but we got a bod pod. And I was 308 <laughs> pounds, and I was the only dude that they'd ever tested over 300 that was under 10% body fat. So I wow. was like uh, eight and change. And uh, we had a huge bet deal like going, and the, the guy who brought in the bod pod was like, we've never tested anybody over 300 pounds under 10%. And I was the first dude that they'd ever tested. And, uh, you know, dude, I looked the part, and like that was a big thing. Like I uh, not only wanted to perform at a high level, but I also – fucking wanted to not look like a fat fucking slob. I'm out there in white spandex. Like, yeah. you know, and it just, it's, it's kind of strange that, uh, at least from the offensive lineman I see today, like they don't look like they fucking bang heavy weights. No. They don't look like they train as hard as they used to. And they just don't look physically impressive to me. And, um, it's kind of slightly a little depressing to see. And I just know, like, like I said, man, I, I could see a distinct difference in the muscle and the physique of people that trained at a weight over 80% of those that trained under 80% consistently. And, and that's the same thing that we see in our catapult because we have the ability now to measure basically the force, most part, the force that they come off the line of the scrimmage, right? So I know their weight, I can measure acceleration so I can calculate force. And what we're seeing is they're only getting maybe three to five game light reps Monday through Friday, and then they go to the game and they're getting 50 snaps. And so I'm telling my coach, I was like, listen, you're going zero to a hundred. They're only going at 75% of the week. So the way that I relate to the coach is, uh, you know, take a guy that we, we build him up all summer. We're doing high explosive stuff, running with sleds and chains and hills. And we're lifting and we're grinding, we're grinding, grinding. We built this machine that can handle high bouts of high force activity. We get to preseason and you're not hitting. They're not coming off the line of scrimmage. Just think about it. If they're only doing 75%, the way I related to them is, guy comes in squats 500 pounds for a one rep max and then he gets to camp and he only hits 350 for one or two every once in a while what's going to happen to that 500 pound squat what? it's going to go down it's a diminishing so, yeah. it, it's a it's a perishable uh it's a perishable skill that goes away and for the exact reason that i i lifted weights every single day in training camp and always continue to bang heavy weights because i'm not kidding you man my margin of error was so much smaller than some of these other fucking guys they don't lift weights and still bench 500 pounds i don't train all of a sudden that shit it goes away and i remember thinking like they're like why do you train so hard And i'm like because dude realistically this is the only uh only advantage that i have outside of what you guys are doing. Like I can go in there and I know that, uh, if I lift heavy weights, it's going to increase motor unit, uh, motor unit recruitment and my ability to accelerate. I'm like, without yeah. it, I don't have anything else. And no reversibility. Yeah. No reversibility. Less. And like, uh, you know, my ability to maintain muscle mass. So then all of a sudden I didn't get as fat during the season. I mean, it's just like all these key factors. And I just, yeah. I could never figure out why people didn't proceed. And then the other one, which was kind of neat, was actually coming off a of training camp because the load was so high as we were tapering into like towards the end of training camp, getting ready for the season. All of a sudden, my strength shot through the roof because we had trained hard. We got this massive dose. And then when it kind of tapered for the season, all of a sudden I watched my strength skyrocket up in some of my strongest, best lifts. I think it was the only time I ever hit the 200-pound dumbbells for reps on the flat bench was actually right before the season started. Are those gorilla yep. cakes? No, those are called the gorilla cookies. <laughs> well, no, the gorilla cookies are in the gym. 
Well, there's Gorilla Biscuits, Gorilla uh, Cookies. I can't remember what it was, but they so were the 200 big pounds got to be Gorilla Cake. Muffet. Yeah, they were big. <laughs> just getting them in, just getting them out of the rack and getting them into position with 200s was a motherfucker. Chris, do you all have 200s? No, I think the highest that we go up to is 150. Yeah, 80s. Way we're training nowadays, but yeah. <laughs> uh, 150 is what we've got in ours. I don't think it goes up to 200. Were they the old school Ivankos or like the rubber plates that? basically stacked no, each other no they uh it's two barbells the the 60s were actually like iron grips and then those big pops were uh were you know the 10 pounders assembled and so yeah. i remember you know going in there and like the, that was like the goal was to be able to knock those 200s out yeah no yeah but anyway back to the back to your point with you know, make wave in season, make wave off season is like our coaches taper so hard from camp all the way to the last game that the they're not being overstimulated. I'm not a fearful of overtraining from practice. And now I'm getting to the point with our catapult data is like, we're not training hard enough to maintain our strength and power adaptations. Mm. So for me to even go in and say, you need to pull back on this guy. I was like, they need more. So, you know, you know uh, I mean, uh, dynamic med ball work. Um, mm-hmm. I, that, that was pretty much one of the hallmarks. Like I stole it all from Charlie Francis, but like a lot of that dynamic med ball work, especially in a reactive, uh, way, mm-hmm. you know, both like, you know, like an eight, a 15, a 20, and even a 40 pound ball, like with like the slams and like the throws, uh, that was a really cool way for me to work technique and also speed and explosion in like kind of yep. like a, a non uh, way of like fucking crushing my skull. And I always did a ton of that even during the season. Cause it was just a way for me to be able to kind of rotate my hips and throw. And I had a whole kind of progression. I mean, that might be a way to kind of get them some more neurological type reps, uh, yep. you know, within it. Um, the other one, which kind of blew my mind was, uh, I, uh, Kaz was the strength coach for Baylor and Kaz was one of our assistants mm-hmm. at KC. So I, I went out there and worked, trained with those, t- uh, the, the Baylor guys. And, um, one of our favorite things is we do a bunch of like uh, kind of marching a little bit with like a, a belt squat. So we'll hook it up mm-hmm. and they had pit sharks. And so I, I jumped over there and with some of the guys we were doing the pit shark and I just kind of started doing some marching and uh, not a single one of those dudes could lift the leg even with like three fifty, you know, three wheels on the other side, which isn't very heavy. So I started stacking on plates and these dudes couldn't lift it. And uh, they were like, is this a problem? I'm like, yeah, man, if you can't stabilize your trunk, how are we supposed to do these other things? And we started kind of going through and every single one of these guys had a back injury. And it was yep. really kind of interesting when they asked me, like, do you ever any back injuries? I'm like, no. And I'm like, do you guys do any rotation? Are you doing any med ball work? Like, what are you doing? And I think that, um, there are some really basic training principles that I think people are forgetting that are really the hallmark for offense alignment in football that I think we, we get so jiggy that we forget that there's some really cool shit out there too. And, um, you know, so I think for offensive line play, especially, you know, they, they don't want to beat them up. They want to make sure them fresh, but to do that job, you gotta, you know, you gotta know what it's like to hurt yourself. You gotta know what it's like to go out there and head and hands and hit somebody and not just do it on game day. Because if you just hope to God that Sunday is going to be the day or Saturday, it's rarely ever the case. Yeah. So, no. And that's kind of, like I said, that's kind of what we're seeing in our, in our catapult data is just, we, by chance or accident with NCAA cutting back on our practices and what we can do full pad, not full pad, not two days. You just see this massive drop in training and output. And so it's kind of like, well, we, we're still lifting that two days a week. And so they're not getting enough in the weight room. And so we're trying to find creative ways to get it on the field. And so like the explosive med ball throws, so I talked to some guys at Oregon, like Jace Delaney out there and they're using their Friday practice to do like, they'll use like a snatch, 
med ball throws and stuff before they go out to run at practice is almost like a primer to make sure we're filling up our CNS bucket for Saturday to get them primed up. So there's a, we're looking and a lot of it's just data. Data has been my best friend in this is to say, cause otherwise you're just another asshole with an opinion, right? Like if I just want to say, Hey coach, you need to, you need to do this. Well, why? Well, as long as you're wearing like a, uh, like a white, like medical jacket, like if you're wearing like a, like a doctor's lab coat and you got like a couple pens in there, you'll be okay. Yeah, exactly. No, me and my PhD student Joe, we're going to start wearing lab coats on the sidelines at games and, you know, being those guys to get on ESPN. So sleeveless, but, uh, sleeveless, yeah, sleeveless, sleeveless hey, with, with a uh, clipboard and head with and, 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 the, and the Johnny Wad skull right here. Because Ooh, we yeah. Wad, so well, you know, uh, are you ready? Are you ready for what's coming up on Johnny Wad? For, for the brand? No. What do we got? Uh, we're we're taking a bit of a detour. Uh, it's been the 10 year anniversary cross of football. So Johnny Wad's going to put on a new shirt and go to Johnny football. And I'm going to relive oh, we're Johnny football. Yeah. So I like, I like, I, we're going to relive like the uh, original hundred CrossFit football workouts that uh, Andy Stumpf and I created back in the day. So when they, when Glassman posed this idea, I, I like drove down to Coronado and Andy and I sat around in his backyard around this like makeshift uh, fireplace, like drinking beers. And we created the original hundred CrossFit football workouts. And so I remember I got home and I'd had too many beers. So I woke up the next day and I was looking at these workouts and I'm like, I don't think we could fucking post these. And I called him up and he's like, fucking do it, bitch. And I was like, Fuck. <laughs> so those like original workouts and the hilarious part is I, I dropped it on the Johnny Watt site and these guys are like, oh, I got printouts. I, you know, I got some of the old workouts. I was like, what's the oldest workouts you got? And this one dude's like, I got 2012. I'm like, motherfucker, this thing started in 09. And, and the other yeah. thing is they had no way to screen cap or steal the strength watts. So all they know is the conditioning. And I'm like, man, I got the whole thing, dude. You guys, I'm going to fucking hit you with a fire hose. So that's starting dude, here that's in like two awesome. weeks. No, I'm not. So I, I have been doing Jack Street for a while because I, I tweaked my QL. So I'm kind of letting that heal. But I'm, 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 get, I'm coming out of the woods. So it'll be perfect Ooh. timing. I can't wait. Yeah. So ready to roll. Well, no, that's uh, uh, I can't really think of a better endorsement for us. We're actually somebody that knows what the fuck is going on in terms of strength conditioning, <laughs> actually follow some of our programming. Well, I mean, so it's that's, in, it is interesting that, you know, a lot of the data that's coming out now with a lot of the new technology is it falls in line with just the shit you figured out on your own, which is, has tend to be a trend in everything that as we've come along and pushed the programming out, like, Hey man, fuck these percentages. When yeah. you're working with large groups of people that you can't see every day, you have to fill out this, this rep max matrix and go on a daily matrix and you just push it forward. Right? Well, but the, the other one in, um, I think for me is, uh, and then I dude, I, I, I said it a few minutes ago, but like my margin of error was so small. Like I just mm -hmm. wasn't like, I remember I, I told somebody the story recently that, uh, when I got hurt, ruptured my patellar tendon, they were, um, like, like, Hey, we want to watch all this film. And they're having me watch like film of like Jonathan Ogden and Trey Thomas. And I'm like, as a coach, I'm like, got any like six foot five, like white dudes, maybe about 300 pounds. Yeah. These dudes are like six, nine, 400. And he's yeah. like, Oh, why? I'm like, can I get some people like me? And so finally they got me some tape and I was like, Oh, okay. I can watch Jim Lachey. I can watch these guys touch Jokin. Like, like this makes sense to me. And even in the training thing, like, you guys like, like I, I used to joke as a, like for NFL strength coaches, I'm like, you realize that you could have this guy come in and just fucking hit a snare drum for 30 minutes and he's probably going to get better. 
And so I, I used to talk shit to like my, you know, uh, to Wolfie and Tom Canavy and uh, Jeff Hurd and all of our strength coaches. I'm like, you guys have the best scam on the fucking planet. You bring the world's genetic freaks in and anything you do works. So everybody thinks you're a genius. This is bullshit. And like in a friendly way, I was never talking like mad at them. But I was like, for me, uh, like, I think I'm the better indicator because I'll tell you what works and what doesn't work for me to be performance because I, I just don't like... I don't think I have the same potential. Like I've maximized my stuff. I got to do everything right. These guys just have to be with on paper. And so I would talk to them a little bit about the training stuff. And they were like, man, you've, you've looked into this too much. And I'm like, I'm just observational enough, you know, being a, you know, I like to say, you know, I went to that small conservative school up in Northern California, UC Berkeley, but being mm-hmm. fairly analytical, like I just yeah. had this kind of observation of like, Hey, this is what worked. And I was smart enough to actually remember it and ask questions. And, um, you know, and then after you do this stuff every single day, and I'm sure for you, you look for patterns. I look for patterns too. And, Mm -hmm. uh, you just, after a while, you just find enough patterns to like, uh, I'm just going to follow this pattern. And more importantly, I'm going to adhere to this. I'm going to see how it works and it ends up being successful. And then people ask you about it and then they, they, they think like, Oh, I'm like, I'm just not stupid enough to, to ignore the patterns, which is, I think yeah. what a lot of what you're doing where you're like, Hey, I'm going to get all this testing and we're going to try to follow the patterns to get the largest percentage of people headed in the right direction that we're looking for. Right. And that was honestly, it took me, that was a lesson coming from a scientist, very specific, you know, a lesson I learned early on is you never discount anecdotal people's anecdotal experiences, guys that have been doing this for 20 and 25, 30 years that, I'm doing this for a reason because I've seen it work and I can't explain it scientifically, but this is the reason why we're doing it. And so like now I've kind of adopted this, okay, well, I'm going to follow your pattern and I'm going to help try to explain it. So we're just going to do as much testing as we can and try to figure out why this method works. And then we run with it until it stops working. Cause inevitably, and I love one of my favorite quotes is everything works nothing not works forever, forever. Yeah. and then it works for the same person. So, yeah. Yeah. you know, we'll, we'll keep following these trends until we figure out a better way or until, you know, we, we keep learning. So when I went out and trained out at Westside with Louis Simmons, uh, I, I think I ate like 17 meals in a row with Louis and it was pretty cool. Cause I got to really, I, I, I still want to, you know, take this podcast on the road and go visit him. Cause I know we, we, we probably won't be able to get him on the phone, but, uh, his observation of training people for 40 years and this and like just his knowledge on like performance enhancing drugs and just like observation of this and uh was like nothing i've ever seen you know to the yeah. point where like you know ah, that guy's skin color i was like oh you don't know, look so good he's like ah, yeah, no. you know he knew exactly like oh he needs to take more orals under the weight he was he wasn't purple enough or you know this or i mean he had these strange antidotes of like if you want to do this, like, Hey, if you, like I floor pressed 500 pounds and he was like, Hey, can you hit the, uh, you know, how many reps at the one fifties on the flat bench dumbbells? Can you get, I'm like, let's go text. He's like, I bet you get eight to 10. And I think I got like, you know, 11 and he was like, Oh, okay. Well that makes, you know, and he had like, he had worked with so many people that he knew like, uh, his first thing, he's like, what's your, what's your waist size? I'm like 38. He's like, Oh, you'll never squat a thousand pounds. You got to have at least a 47 inch waist to squat a thousand. Right. And I was like, I'm never gonna have a 47 inch waist. Can I squat a thousand? I mean, he just, it fucking blew my mind that he had, he had had so much observation of training athletes, uh, that it's just, you know, and then I, I had read all of his books. And so I was excited when I showed up there cause I started asking him questions about his books. And then I realized like they wrote a book 
but that wasn't at all what the training was going on there that like the training that he was doing was so different. Like if, if you do this, it's this. And I think that there's just some inherent kind of genius in the people that are able to get these results that might not always be quantifiable, but like you said, man, anecdotal where at the end of the day, like some of that stuff is just blow, you know, like you're like, man, how did that dude figure that out? Like, I think Louis yep. probably knows more about performance enhancing and like how the drugs work in the interaction than any person on the planet, just because yeah. they probably did things that no human being would ever test, you know, right. at, at, you know, so it was, it was cool. Well, I get it. Yeah, absolutely. So. Well, cool, man. I feel like we've sucked away a huge part of your day. Thank you for allowing us to chew your ear and connect. And it was awesome. Oh, no, dude, I really appreciate it. Um, again, anytime I get a, an excuse to talk to you guys or head down to Austin and Bee Cave and, and hang out, I'm, I'm more than willing to do it. So nice. well, consider yourself always invited, man. If you can squeeze down, we'd love to have you. Yeah, appreciate it, guys. Looking forward to the next installment of Johnny Football. Yeah, yeah. sounds good. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks, All right, Chris. See you guys. Thanks, Chris. See you. Good chat, you man. Well. Bye-bye. Now it's time for you to empower your performance. Be sure to follow Dr. Morris on Instagram at DocSportSCI. Tune in next week when we are joined by B-list celebrity and successful Paleolithic enthusiast Rob Wolf. Until next time, bye!